Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildbo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and fuck intro jokes, Fist is alive! Woo, woo, woo! Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's all. <laughs> this is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of emergency C-sections, super-powered slumber parties, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, Arc 12 Heavens comes to an end with 12.none and 12.x. We journey through the life of Dauntless until he turns into a scary mountain, and then a series of post-cradle vignettes takes us through a lot of our major and minor characters, concluding with a final showdown between March and Foil. Matt, what'd you think of these two chapters? Oh my god. I mean, these are, these are both incredible uh, interlude chapters, right? So the, the first, 12.none, is, I think I already, I think I said this somewhere, like an instant favorite um, of mine that just like really, really impacted me, uh, actually, uh, and it was, I found very emotional. And then 12.x is just this roller coaster of zipping through a bunch of characters who, who we've, some, some of whom we've been curious about, some of whom are just really interesting, and then ending with this basically a, a climax to one of the running plot lines that's been going through this whole story. And it just blows me away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so much here. I, like, this is an enormous script. They're two enormous chapters. We have so, so, so much to say. I'm not going to waste any other time. Um, it's it's great. I think there's so much to talk about. And uh, and it's kind of, um, not to pun intentionally, but it's daunting. These chapters are, are daunting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, there, I was nervous about this one. There's a lot to talk about. And um, Dauntless is a very complex character and what happens to Dauntless Dauntless is very complicated and uh I'm and and that's just one of the two chapters right mm. it's it's crazy so yeah let's just get into it let's do it okay uh quick announcement i guess first uh everyone should check out the uh, new um show that we uh, released uh, earlier this I think week it's the second we can tell people it's an <laughs> April Fools joke now okay fine yeah we we did a fun little 15 minute thing for uh, Wildbo's web serial face um, it, if you are subscribed to this pop podcast, it should have hit your feed. If you haven't checked that out yet, go listen to it. We had some fun with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's not just 15 minutes of silence. Um, no, we actually did a thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then next announcement, uh, March's madness continues. I guess it's finishing like this is it, right? Well, not quite. This is the final four. This so final next week will be four. our championship round. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Okay. And, and we're going to be voting at the end of the episode. So yeah. stick around. Yep. All right, let's get into 12.none. Let's do it. So, yeah, like we said, oh man, this. So, okay, with this interlude, as it starts, before it starts, we're already on edge because 12.none is this disorienting title, just like 12.all, yeah. which was a big break from the main, from like the naming scheme of, of letters that we've gotten used to. Um, and 12.none plays off of all, but 
none is just somehow way more o- ominous to me. Yeah, because it's none, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and I think this is really interesting. And and I think what Wildbow does with these arc titles and and the order they came through uh, at the end of this chapter is wonderful. But um, I also think the the concept of none here is very interesting because one of the big themes of this is connection. One of the big themes of this this uh, interlude and and a lot of the book as a whole as a whole is this idea of connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it, it's very fascinating and the thing that's very interesting to me about this and i think we'll talk about none a little bit further as we get into the chapter but this is a different naming scheme this interlude um when we got 12. all it was a very different kind of interlude right it's the first time we saw really from a shard's perspective it was this big big change and this interlude 12. none still different naming scheme starts off pretty standard, right? Um, we, we, we see a trigger event. We find out who the character is. We go through like, uh, some scenes from their life and then we catch up to present day, which is a pretty standard interlude structure, um, until things get just fucking crazy at the end. But it, it really kind of throws you off because you're expecting something in the line of, of dot all where everything's very, very different. Yeah. That's a great point. You're, if anything, the fact that it seems like a normal interlude is what, is what does throw you off. Um, but right, right. The, but there is, you know, it's not completely. I mean, yes, you're right. It is a relatively standardly structured interlude, but it is disorienting uh, because, you know, okay, first of all, the title is disoriented, uh, disorienting, and then our characters in the scene are very disoriented, and 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 you feel disoriented because uh, you don't know who they are. Uh, it takes a while before the clues to who they are start to trickle in. Um, and that's that's fine. I think uh, a lot of interludes go that way, and and um, and I personally was really sucked into the scene itself and what was happening, and I stopped really being concerned about whether this was a character we knew or or what exactly you know where this was going. I just wanted to find out how they got out of the van, you know. Yeah, and that's I mean that's a sign to me of good writing, right? Um, we have no idea who these characters are. We know very little about them. We have no real anchor for them at all, um, and yet we are instantly fascinated by their story. We're instantly empathizing with them. Um, and that's kind of one of the things as we go through this early part of the chapter, I want to talk about, I want to focus on as we go through the things is, is how, how this empathy is created because it's not easy to do that. Right. Um, I mean, everyone talks about the scene from Pixar's up where you empathize with these two characters after like a little 10 minute short story movie. Um, and, and how emotionally devastating it is this is kind of like that. This, this, this opening scene of this chapter is like a very short story, um, that, that endears us to these characters. We don't even really know yet. That's a great point. Yeah. This, this is the Pixar's up intro uh, to this character. Right. So yeah, I mean, we meet Sean and his girlfriend, Kelly trapped in their van under a mudslide, slowly dying of thirst. And on top of that, we learn gradually incrementally because Sean doesn't really spell it out for us that Kel is pregnant, and since she has good reason to believe she's dying, the pair of them has decided that the baby's only chance is to be cut out. Yeah, which is doled out to us in a very kind of slow, deliberate manner um, to be maximally devastating. Yeah. Um, and, and like we said, this this entire scene manages to so quickly and efficiently build empathy for these two no-name characters. Um, and, and I think when you look at how the chapter opens up the first words of the chapter. I think you immediately see how it's doing that. The first words of the chapter are Kelly saying, I want to meet her. And then, yeah, his voice came out as a croak. It was hard to know what to say in a moment like this, 
my daughter, my sweet, sweet girl. I want to say my goodbye. I want to hold her. You are holding her, Kel. So this is the first four sentence, four lines of the chapter. We don't know the scene yet. We know nothing about the mudslide. We know nothing about the van. Um, we don't know who the point of view character is. All we know is that one of them is named Kel. Um, we don't even know she's pregnant yet, right? Like right. We, we, we know there's a baby. We don't know she's pregnant. But immediately we have the scene where a mother is saying, I want to say goodbye to my daughter. Yeah. Um, and how destroying that is being to the point of view character. So like we don't like that's I mean, that's like universal empathy, right? Like yeah. that's like like a, a mother saying goodbye to their child is something that pretty much everyone in this world, I think, will immediately be like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is the saddest thing. Um, right. Yeah, that's that's. I'm glad you pulled out those first lines because yeah, like you're 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 disoriented, but it's not a kind of disorientation where the priority is to f- like like solve the mystery. You're just like, oh oh no, this is this is terrible. Like yeah, yeah I, I almost don't want to find out. Like it's almost too too sad. Yeah, and the decision here was um, focus on the emotion first, and then fill in the context. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 shows um, that shows the priority of the scene first emotion second let's fill in the context behind the because the emotion is the most important part and once you've got that we can fill the context in behind it and that's exactly what this does and as you said it opens up we we hear their love story which is this fairly like classic if not sad love story of like two kids like from homes that they weren't happy in they ran away from home they found each other they found strength in each other um this this moment where they it says they had their individual neuroses and traumas to get over before they meshed properly um so just like like they had issues they were working through this kind of fits into our themes of recovery uh they had their problems they worked on them they found a certain level of peace Our, our point of view character says he smiled for the first time in maybe his entire life when he was thinking about their life together um, so, so we build this, this like beautiful love story mm-hmm. and then, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then we do our thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, I like that it's, it's more, there's, there's a wrinkle though. There's like an extra wrinkle to it that I think makes it, uh, more like personalized, more, more, uh, that's not the right word necessarily. Like the, the more, more individual, you know, the, the, these are, these are characters with, with a lot of detail to what's going on so like for example you know um she hands him the knife and and we don't okay so first of all i'm just going to read the way this is written because because i love i love a lot of things about it in the gloom his hands traced the outline of the thing he had been given he was careful because he already knew the shape of the handle promise me she said promise me promise me promise me I promise, he said, even though he was still wrapping his head around what she wanted, or he understood, like he understood the knife, that there was always that doubt in his mind when it came to Kelly. So, the, like, I just thought this was an incredibly beautifully done bit of writing here. So just the mm-hmm. the, the, the first paragraph, he, he is familiar with the thing he's been handed, but we aren't told what it is. It has a handle, that's all we know. And then... The, the last paragraph references the knife and you realize that she handed him a knife and it's just such a yeah. great way of of dripping this information to you in a way where you're like uh-oh um and i still don't think that i figured out what was going on but i just love the kind of the the, the setup of it and then yeah there's the way it, this is indicative of, of the way this whole this whole part intro part of the chapter is written just great Abs- 
Absolutely. And, and I like you mentioned how this opening was disorienting. And I think it is, is that is a design of the chapter. Mm -hmm. We are in the point of view of this guy who is disoriented. Right. Um, he, he like the chapter is focusing on the emotions he's feeling first and then trying to fill in the blanks for them. He doesn't fully understand what Kelly is asking him to do. It takes him a bit to work through it. Just like it's taking us a bit to work through what's happening here. She hands him the knife and he's starting to get it. He yeah. doesn't have it yet. Like even though he was, he was still wrapping his head around what she wanted or he understood maybe, but there's always that doubt in yeah. his mind. Right. Right. And, and the doubt is, is kind of what I was talking about with these characters, you know, it being more complicated than just kind of a Romeo and Juliet story, because, yeah. you know, to, to add to this objectively stressful situation is the fact that Kelly is, is schizophrenic and thus he's never quite sure, especially now in this situation, he's never quite sure if he's following along with a reasonable plan or if this is like a tangent that has sort of gotten away from her. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I, this is this is a really great setup to a beautiful payoff at the end of this chapter. But this idea that um, he, he has to kind of be on his guard constantly and not get sucked into these tangents that sometimes happen. Mm -hmm. But he's tired. He's so tired and and he's worried. So at the same time, he's thinking, maybe I am getting sucked down these tangents. Maybe this is something completely unreasonable. But I'm tired and I just want to listen to everything. I just want her like I don't I want her to guide me. Um, and he's so, yeah, he's having doubts like this is this is a crazy thing she's asking him to do, but it might be a necessary thing. She might be about to die. Um, they know that they're going to be rescued. Theoretically, like he's he mentions that he's heard helicopters flying overhead, um, so he thinks that maybe a rescue operation is coming but he doesn't know for sure mm -hmm. so yeah it's this this totally stressful situation where he he knows that this might not be what what is a good thing to do but he finds himself going with her anyway agreeing to her anyway yeah he, he does end up going along with it um so i guess either he ended up thinking it was a good idea or it was just too much for him yeah i mean um, you have the love of your life like begging you to do something right yeah. just like, standing there like begging you begging you over and over again promise me promise me promise yeah. me and and she's kind of portrayed as like she's she's dying she can't move i think she's like stuck at the bottom of the van probably pinned by something she can't move she can't feel her yeah. body she says yeah and, yeah and there's no like they said that, that none of the the air the, the little bit of air that's getting through is getting to her mm -hmm. um, because of her position in the van yeah so she's definitely worse off yeah. So here toward the beginning, Sean also lets us know a bit about himself, that he's had his own problems. Lots of people in his life who've told him that they loved him, but none of whom seemed the least bit interested in showing it. And this is really the linchpin of our whole character and our whole chapter, right? He's a guy that uh, seems to reach out a lot, that he has he he's friends with people. Um, he loves people. Um, but he doesn't feel it in return. It's like those connections are one way. Mm -hmm. They go outward. He doesn't receive them. He gives them. Um, and and he, wa he wants those connections. He, like, wants those things. He's this, this beautifully tragic story about how he writes his teacher saying <laughs> how important uh, this teacher was to him. And the response is like the coldest. I can't imagine like a teacher actually. Yeah. I told him, I told my wife this. I was like, look at this. Look at what this teacher did to this guy. She's like, that's terrible. Why would you ever do that to someone? Just lie. If you don't remember them, just lie. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here we have a guy who feels like he has no connections. 
None. Um, except for one. Yeah. Except for one. He has one and he's going to get another one. Um, yeah. But uh, that's there's so there's a lot of stuff actually that's being set up here. Yeah. That um, that pays, you know, th- that is revisited in, in the end. Yeah. I, I really love this bit about uh, this really brief bit where they say like his all his teachers would say about him is he's a person that has potential, which is um, which is this this like not valuing who uh not valuing who you are right now yeah but who you could be and of course this is perfect for dauntless right because he's a person that like was seen as the cape with the most potential like a one day you'll be stronger than idolin one day uh not today but one day and i think that's just a perfect like link into this this like defining emotional core where he the thing he sees about the people around him is how they value what he could be in the future but never value who he is in the moment uh, See, so yeah, thanks for pointing that out because I was I was gonna say that this is actually one of like the nicest shards that we've encountered, um, <laughs> because uh, I, I guess we can get to that like like right now, um, yeah, and then we can debate whether this shard is nice or not. Um, so basically, yeah, as, as he begins to cut into Kelly's abdomen, he triggers, but uh, if anything, he finds the trigger to be like a distraction, and the power, which is something heavy with connections comes to him and it tries to sweep him, sweep him away. But uh, his intention to stay in the moment and to deal with the immediate crisis seems to defeat the shard. It says there was almost a sentiment to it, a sigh, a frustrated concession. And we get the sense that the power ends up with the, the, the power that he ends up with is perhaps only a vestige of what it could have been. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when it ends, the knife that he's using is empowered and it cauterizes her flesh, uh, potentially making the difference in Kelly living or dying. Um, and, and so what I wrote here was, you know, I want to remark that this is like a shard that's just helping, like it's just, just helped him <laughs> with the problem that he was having. Um, but what you said about, you know, it's, it's doing it in this way where it kind of, it kind of preys upon what, what does seem like a little bit of a, a lack of self-confidence that he has and on this, this fixation on potential. Yeah. But I mean, this is, I, I think you're right that this is one of the most unique trigger events we've ever seen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no indication that he like passes out. There's no indication that memories of the, 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 those connections like were removed from him. And that's because he didn't complete those connections, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they were, they were pulling him, drawing him to this thing. And he said, no, um, I want to focus on this. I want to focus on this person. That's what I care about. That's what I, that's what I want to do. And the shard eventually just gives up. It's mm-hmm. not working. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and makes, so what is possibly like the most unique shard person relationship uh, in the story so far, right? I mean, we've never seen it quite like this yeah. before. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it seems to me to be one of those like unique special shards. Yeah. And, and but also it, it seems to have this property, which it, at least seems unique to me where, Throughout this chapter, it seems to need some kind of um, go ahead from its host, like to to, to do things later in the chapter. And, and even it, it almost gave him uh, a hand on a wheel to borrow a hand on the wheel to borrow the phrase that he uses later in, yeah. his, in his own power, you know, which is very unusual. Usually the shard sweeps in, gives you whatever power it wants. It, it's usually going to fuck you over in some way. <laughs> right. Um, and, and this time it, it almost seems like it cared what he thought. Yeah. Well, and it didn't get to do what it wanted to do. Fully. Yeah. Um, it, it's like, it's like his, 
his unique set of circumstances made it so things weren't working the way the shard wanted it to. Mm -hmm. But it wanted that connection still. Or maybe, you know, by the time it, it initiates the the trigger, um, it, it can't like it has no abort function. Right. So it has to do it in the best way. It has to arrange it or connect it in the best way it can. Um, so it just like does it. Yeah. Even though he's resisting it. So it makes a unique kind of connection. Yeah. I mean, this is this is different and big. And and I think the more we think about Dauntless's power, the more interesting it gets. And I think we'll get to that. In yeah. A bit. Yeah. I, I think it is interesting that we see here, like the text really, really draws out how different of a cape he is, um, how different his his trigger was and how different his priorities lie, because it, it notes that he, he has this knife that he's just imbued with power. And uh, the second he stops using it, he puts it aside as if it's like it's not it's not important. Like yeah. this is not this is and it's like that's symbolic of my powers. Like how often does a cape trigger? And then it's just like, I can't deal with the power stuff right now. Like, it's like, no, um, it's it's very, very unique. Yeah, right. He, he, he almost he's just like uses it as a light source and then kind of forgets about it. I, yeah. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, so it uh, just kind of the one of the final beats of this scene is that he suggests a gender gender neutral name for the baby Addison because he doesn't want to disrupt Kelly's perception <sighs> that the baby is a girl. So beautiful. Um, and, and, and it says, uh, and, and maybe if Kelly had been gifted like he'd been gifted in this tomb of theirs and she'd seen something in Addison, then, then the name should work then too. I thought that was really, really sweet and, and beautiful and also just extremely well written. This whole chapter is just beautifully written. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially this little this little intro part here, this this sad, tragic story mm-hmm. um, that has a happy ending, kind of, at least. Yeah, right. Like it could have been worse, right? Like that's that's yeah. one thing that I think we're going to probably hit on a couple times, but we know how this ends. Like as soon as we realize yeah. who this is, which is which is the next thing that happens, um we we know how this ends and we're like, "Oh, mm-hmm. I, I like this guy now." Yeah. Shit. Right, right. Yeah. And and the the book is absolutely playing off of that knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Especially as we move into the pre-Leviathan prep. There is there is a weight to everything that is happening there that is 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 there with full knowledge of everyone reading knows exactly where this is about to go. Yeah, yeah. Um right. Um and so the uh the the crying the the crying of the baby is is the last thing from this scene that I think is worth talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is that is something that happens is the baby starts to cry and uh, he goes back to his his lessons with the doctor with the doctor saying like some it's sometimes it's okay like you are genetically disposition have a genetic disposition to like find a baby's cry deeply uncomfortable. That's Mm -hmm. intentional. Um, It's okay to set the baby down and walk out of the room, but he can't. He's trapped in this place he can't move he's just got to sit there with the crying baby um and and live in it and that uh, that again is a very clever setup to uh the payoff at the at the end of this chapter yeah that's that's exactly right um so yeah and just as we're made aware of the fact that the power is building inside of him and we begin to think as as you tweeted in your in your live tweet wait is this dauntless uh <laughs> we, sw- we switch forward in time uh to dauntless immediately uh the hero in the prime of his life being just a solid dude and helping battery with some scheduling issues yeah i wonder i mean did you is that about when you figured it out too like right before it tells you because i mean if you think about it you can probably get there just by 
the knife alone, what he like what he does to the knife I, I think, and some educated guessing. I think I suspected it was Dauntless when he imbued the power in the knife because I was kind of expecting a Dauntless interlude at some point. Not, yeah. not necessarily yeah. this one, but uh that was on my on my short list of of interludes that we were gonna get. So I mean, especially I mean, yeah, because like we we knew we kind of knew that we kind of knew we were gonna get this, right? Yeah, we kind of um, had to get this. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um the thing that I really like so much about this particular jaunt into the the near past is we're getting all these nice, wonderful reminders about what the world was like before mm-hmm. it ended, um, what being a hero meant in this world. Like the whole first part of this is talking about scheduling and planning and who goes to what. Um, the fact that there's there's t- every single TV show in this world has their cape episode. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the PRT controls uh, the content uh, when the capes appear. So it's basically become their uh, their propaganda source and and how how they control cape sentiment and that's that's a big thing what the PRT does and and I think that's really important here and and it really makes you think about what's happening in the present day because Victoria and her team have none of this they have none of this big arm that's controlling public sentiment towards these people and. Uh, now, like we already know there's this large contingent of anti-K people and now there's going to be like a big mountain in every dimension. Yeah, it's, it's a big, scary colossus. Um, And and it's just wonder you just like it, it. I think it triggers thoughts in you about like, OK, how are they going to control this? Is this going to be blamed on them? And I think the the next chapter actually goes into that a little bit and in part of it. Yeah, right. It's almost kind of quaint to remember how things used to be in contrast yeah. to the current like death world i mean like like that especially especially in contrast to the arc that this chapter is coming near the end of it's this arc of just death and and heroic characters killing people yeah and butchery uh it it just you know and this is like the heyday of the um heroes being on tv shows yeah so so yeah there's there's just some some neat stuff in here uh just to kind of touch on briefly that um, it, it's just nice. It's just, it's just nice to, to touch on these things, you know, like we get, I think a little bit more shading on the battery assault relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've got stuff, so I'll just read it. He knew assault and battery were dating. They'd formally told the people in charge, but didn't seem, but sorry, but didn't seem to him like it was a good thing. Already. She was playing defensive, making excuses and pulling strings to avoid the bad instead of seeking the good. Um, and I, I mean, so this tells us a lot about, um, a lot about Dauntless, I think. Yeah. But but also I think it's kind of cool that that this this thing this thing that has existed in canon, we're getting a little bit of a different angle on it. Um which which seem I mean it seems like it seems like it's fair. Like I don't think we're supposed to doubt Dauntless's perspective here. No, but I mean it is I mean we're about to talk like Dauntless is dating someone new. He's married he's is he married at this point? I think he's married. Yeah. He's married to someone new. Uh, this woman named Jennifer, um, and he catches himself like, like criticizing battery and assault relationship here mm-hmm. without realizing. And, and then he, he realizes himself, Hey, I'm, I'm not holding my relationship up to that standard because at the same time he's thinking about, um, uh, if I take this job and then donate all the money, that's going to annoy Jennifer. Um, Yeah. And and how he's he's with her because she's so good for his son. Right. Um, it doesn't seem like he, it seems like his feelings towards her are rather complicated. Um, but yeah. 
I, I just like it's it, he 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 disparages these this these two people of their relationship that he clearly doesn't understand very much of and then immediately realizes it and kind of calls himself internally on it. Um, yeah. So we're, we're really defining him as a very thoughtful character. I, I agree with you there because there I think there is a good chance that the first bit may have been projection. But yeah. th- that's kind of one of the one of the things that makes you like him is that he's consistently very willing to reflect on himself and 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 not not in like a woe is me way, but in a very like even handed way to to be like, is am I responsible for this problem? And if so, I need to I need to work on it and fix it and, mm-hmm. and take action. Like he's just very like, I need to make things better for myself and for other people. Yeah. <laughs> kind of kind of just very even keeled fella. Very unusual for a parahuman. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I agree. And I think that it all ties into the uniqueness of his trigger event is is because he is a unique person. And I think that's reflected into his uniqueness as a cape. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, another, you know, interesting thing is is that one of the many things that he's done that makes you like him is is he started a charity for people with Kelly's um, issues just as a way of honoring her because she kind of disappeared from their lives. Yeah, and he gives so much money towards this charity, mm-hmm. and he, it's it's not just he started this charity and he funnels money to it. It like says that like he's he's active and involved. He meets with them like to make sure the direction of the charity is is one that he feels most uh most honors the struggle that she has with her uh her schizophrenia. It's I mean it's he's God he's like the freaking Mister Rogers yeah of Cape World yeah I, I, like there's there's really nothing in this chapter that makes me want to be like but but we should but we should be skeptical like it's, it's right. like no he's just a great guy yeah i mean he does have his own problems that's definitely true yeah um, but but he but i think the pers- the perspective he has on his problems tends to be like um i'm working on them and i'm going to try to fix them you know yeah um I, I i like this bit here where uh he's thinking about the wards and he thinks at best there were some terrific kids at worst, they were good training for dealing with teenagers with issues in case Addison ended up struggling. So that, that's kind of an example of, of what I'm talking about, where it's like he's even even bad things. It's like, oh, well, if it, if it turns out to be bad, then that's just practice for dealing with bad things. Like, what a positive minded person. <laughs> I know, it's a total positive spin on it. Yeah, right. Fucking Mr. Rogers. Um, so one interesting thing that, I mean, it's time to bring up because we've met that we've seen we've seen the wards now. He sees the wards is that. Everybody who shows up in this chapter, except except Sean and except Addison, is dead in in the present. Yep. Um, and w- w- if you didn't notice that, notice that he says, uh, "No Vista." I thought she was coming tonight. Um, and also, you'll note that uh, Taylor Hebert does not appear, despite uh, the fact that he goes to the place where the Le- where they're gathering for the Leviathan attack. Yeah. Well, maybe he just didn't look, and that doesn't stop. You're overthinking it. Nope, I'm thinking exactly <laughs> the right amount. The Vista thing is perfect. Yes, um, and and it, it like when you're reading it the first time and you do, you haven't quite put the pieces together that hey every single part every single person in this part of the chapter um, is dead. Uh, like you just think that maybe he's just not rubbing salt in the Vista wound by having us see her like, Oh look, here's Vista. She just died. Like, so he's, he's going easy on us. Uh, but no, it's, it's something totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so gallant asks to ride with dauntless. And th- I think this is like a couple of years before 
this is a while before the, the Leviathan thing, right? Because Dauntless, because Gallant actually seems younger. It's just in his behavior. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, he asks to ride with Dauntless, and then, and then he takes the opportunity to tell uh, Dauntless that Challenger uh, is a nightmare to ride with. And again, Dauntless is just a total mensch, and he's like, I'll take care of it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so as Dauntless rides across the bay, he calls Jennifer, and then he ruminates on how he's never had any problems with loving people, but he always has issues receiving love. Yeah, there's that 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 reception of connection, right? Yep. Um, that that no problem extending those connections to other people, but the the reply, the the feedback to it is something that he feels like he's missing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll connect with you. Not much is going to be sent back to me. Yeah. Or um, so, th- th- for me, and I, and I like that you said that because it because it could be interpreted that not much is being sent back to him, or it could be that this is really entirely within him and. He he, and you know Jennifer loved him as much as any woman can love a man, and he just isn't. He just doesn't believe it because he doesn't yeah. believe he's he's uh, he's um, worthy of it or something like that. Yeah, that's absolutely what I think. Yeah, I don't I don't think that there's like he's just surrounding himself by people that don't actually give a shit about him. Mm-hmm. I do think. I do think he has a, a, a thing. Part of his issues is he has he has a lot of difficulty um, feeling that that reception of connection mm-hmm. um and i think even later he he notes that that's that's part of the bargain he unknowingly struck with his shard during that whole back and forth wrestle was to take maybe something he was experiencing throughout his life already and to make it literal mm-hmm. through through the shard which is what this book does all the time mm-hmm. uh, and is great so. yeah so later sean fills addison in on who he is and addison who we're only meeting now is completely lovable uh, he seems great, and Sean sees a lot of Kelly in him, and we just we just love Addison. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I I don't believe this is a scene we've ever seen in the Parahumans universe before. Uh, an adult telling their child, uh, "I'm actually a superhero." No, I mean I can't even really think of of any scenes off the top of my head that are that are the classic "I'm Batman" scene. Like yeah. like the closest I can think of is Shadowstalker. And and like her brother, but that was not Shadowstalker. That was Regent. Um, yeah, so true. So I can't. Yeah, I can't really think of any um, examples of of like of this exact interaction. And that's really yeah. interesting, actually. Good point. Yeah, and and it, yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that his son handles this very well. I mean, he's it's not just like oh cool, but it's not just like I'm furious that you lied at me. It's it's complex emotions in between that. It's um, I I. I'm worried that I don't know who you are anymore because you lied to me. I'm worried about you, but I understand why you kept this from me. Yeah. Um, son's a great kid. Yeah. It's it's like Dauntless is just making everyone around him better. Like he's giving them, them powers it's to be better or something. Them. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. I'm, I'll be so sad if this kid dies. So sad. <laughs> um, but I mean, that, that is what this whole part is right like he takes the mission that the other people don't want because battery doesn't want to do that because she's uncomfortable you know with her assault relationship being public um he tells gallant that he's going to deal with gallant's complaints um he's obviously raising a very smart uh emotionally mature son uh he seems to make those around him better and to improve the lives of those around him Mm -hmm. and uh that's it's really great yeah Uh, i love this here um, Addison saying, I was just wondering who you are, I guess. The words hurt. 
who Dauntless is, Addison clarified. Maybe he'd seen the hurt. He's me, trying to do my best. He's me. That's so... I mean, we talk so much about the difference between your civilian life and your cape life, right? And yeah. Are, are, is that is that a mask you wear to become a different person? Some people use it to escape. Some people use it to hide. Um, he's me. He's just me trying to do my best. Yeah, I, I adore that because he's not. He doesn't have that whole thing where he's like, um, "I'm gonna put on the mask and now I'm Dauntless." It's yeah. it's like he's this is just the guy he is. He's. I mean, I like that Dauntless is a. Um, is that an adjective or an adverb? <laughs> I always fuck this up. <laughs> but anyway, like it's it it descri- it's a descriptor of of just what and who he is. It's yeah. Um, well, it's and, and it's interesting because like we never like there's no moment in this this chapter where it's like this is why I became a superhero, right? Like there's no there's no like he he doesn't have like this like with great power comes great responsibility moment. It's just kind of implied. Like he doesn't think about it much. He doesn't think about being a hero or not. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's just part of him. It's just like, this is, this is what he feels like he has to do. And, and that's, that's all there is to it. Right. We're going to see that pretty soon. Uh, when, when Leviathan comes, um, and speaking of Leviathan, like all this stuff with, with Addison is just so heartbreaking because you know where it's all heading. Like, yeah, like it, it's it's just making it even more painful that you know what's going to happen soon, right? And and because we're reading these books, you're thinking the worst. So not only is Addison going to lose his father, but then he's probably going to die in gold morning, right? That's like the, the, I've, that's what my brain said. Uh-huh. That, that like Dauntless is going to wake up, the bubble's going to pop, and the first thing he's going to learn is, "Sorry, dude, your kid's dead." Remember that the only person you felt like a genuine reception of a connection to in the world, gone. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point that that we're actually misdirected a, a little bit because we we actually have no reason to believe at this point in time that Dauntless has been conscious the whole time. Our assumption was always that he goes into the bubble, uh, uh, March pops the bubble, and he he went from the Leviathan fight immediately to turning into a giant. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, so so I, so it's it's actually kind of cool that that our just kind of implicit expectation was was derailed here yeah yeah but anyway we're not there yet so <laughs> we, we reached the leviathan attack and uh man was i anxious even though i knew it was going to happen it, it is kind of crazy how well the tone of this part of the chapter like immediately sends you emotionally back to the first time you read Arcade. Mm-hmm. because like you got the sirens going off you got like this this like panicked hush of people like going into hiding or the the heroes amongst them like getting ready to step up and go meet to fight it's like i was there again i was there at the beginning of this battle again and yeah just like you said like you know this is it this is it for dauntless this is uh, his time has caught up to him and it it makes it all the more Mm nerve-wracking like i think I, i was saying in my tweets just like dude no just take your kid just go just what just go uh just go to Go to Fugly Bob's instead. Yeah, Just yeah. Do that. Yeah, li- listen to him. You'll be stronger next time. Yeah. Um. um yeah. I, so we, yeah, we didn't pull that speech out, but that was pretty beautiful, right? That he's just like, if you skip this, you'll actually be stronger next time because you're constantly getting stronger. And his response is like, yeah, but I could make that argument every time. Mm-hmm. Every time I'll be stronger next time. I I have to do this. Yeah. Yeah. 
So as they head outside, we see Sean once again being awesome, directing elderly and bewildered people to the shelters, nodding to the Pelhams. Um, he enlists, and, and that, like that's not that's that's not like a throwaway moment, right? That's just another little like beat of doom. Yeah, um, yeah. And he enlists the, their neighbor Gene uh, to take Addison to a shelter. And and as he's doing this, he he thinks she probably knew the times he'd called her over to watch things because of an emergency call, especially when the bombs had been happening. Um, yeah, it's just it's just really cool to like to, to show this side of superhero life that like yeah. the neighbors are, are are helping him because they know who he is and they appreciate him for it. Yeah, it is. It is great, and it's not. It's not a part of it. We get to see that all that often mm-hmm. in these stories. So, mm-hmm. I, like, even if it's in the past, it is a nice little window into it. Yeah. So as the chapter continues, we see more and more of the dead. We see clock blocker and browbeat now. Um, and again, it's just like this background drumbeat of ominousness. It's these ghosts looming out of the fog. Uh, I, I love the way you put that. Like Wildbo has, has very deliberately constructed it this way. As every as every person, as you said, that he interacts, interacts with here outside of his son are dead and gone. It's it's ominousness, those drumbeats. But but it's also, I think, like a way of representing Dauntless's connections. Right. Or mm-hmm. or lack thereof. Even through everything, his only real connection in, in everything we're shown is with his son. Um, everyone else, everyone else he knew is gone. They don't exist anymore. They're, they're dead. So it's just, it's just a way of like visually highlighting, you know, the importance of, you have these other people that are, like you said, are like ghosts, but the one, the one real thing is his connection to his son. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of connections and, and, you know, we've, we, we have this, this, this concept that the only person that he really feels love in return from is, is Addison and at this point, we learned that Kel um, is not dead. Like we, we yeah. assumed she was. She actually just like disappeared and forfeited her parental rights. Yeah, this was a real shock. You're absolutely right that the book just like kind of lets you assume that because mm-hmm. it never says one way or the other. It just kind of lets you assume. Um, but yeah, this, so this is one of the two people he has ever felt a genuine connection to. Um, and she kind of severed that, right? She She chose... Um, for the good of her son, arguably, uh, that that she didn't want that, and and yet he can't say bad things about her. Like she she she's gone. She left his life. He loved her. She loved him back, and she's gone now. And yet he's like can't say terrible. Like he can't bring himself to even badmouth her yeah. to anyone to his son. Like he's he's it's 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 yeah. so good. Right. Well, I think he, I mean, he can't, he doesn't want a bad math. Right? I think he's right. not even angry. He's just right. sad. Yeah. Um, so as he's preparing to go to fight, he chooses to allocate this day's power into his breastplate instead of his boots. No. So I, oh, I, I want <laughs> so this is like the best live tweeting ever. Cause, cause you were like, put it in your boots, put it in your boots. And then he puts it, it puts it in the, and then, and then later you're like, told you because <laughs> it as so the text says boots was the thought as the tail snaked around him the leviathan had him and he'd been just a little too slow to get out of the way if he didn't fuse the boots then maybe yeah and, and you're, i mean you're, it's a lot of fun to joke about but i think at the end of the day a little bit of extra power in his boots wasn't going to do anything probably but right it is it is a very a very logical thing to flash through your brain as you realize oh i'm fucked um, that, that, oh, if I had just made a decision slightly different. Yeah. 
You know, I don't I don't mean to get all theory crafty in this moment, but it is interesting. I, I always thought it was interesting, actually, that because uh, the, the, the inbringers are more intelligent um, than than they give them credit for usually. Sure. And, and the idea of Leviathan, instead of just like splattering um, Defiant like this, uh, not Defiant, Dauntless, um, he's like the one guy who he like carefully picks out with his tail and then throws into this time lock bubble like like this this goes along with our goals if we we, we want to put this guy on ice for a while because we don't actually huh. want him yet interesting we, we 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 want it we want to use this power later it it, it factors into our plans later yeah um, which kind of goes I, along with how the chapter ends i always thought just a big godzilla monster just said fuck you and threw him and then he just happened to be thrown right into that time bubble but sure i mean i mean the Leviathan just kind of fucking kills people usually like there's not there's not a lot of nuance to it so picking someone up and throwing them is i don't know but it's it's it, well, it always kind of stuck out to me i mean he would have died right like Prob- if 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 he didn't get stuck in a time bubble and have his boot power like he would have smashed into something and probably been dead yeah sure so he was killing him he he was but he uh, it, it depends on how smart you think leviathan is does he does he did he know that he was throwing him into a time bubble that he was probably going to survive from somehow yeah, that's a good question yeah. that I don't have an answer yeah, to. Yeah, neither do I, but interesting to think about. So days and days of power builds up in him in fractions of a second as time flickers by outside. He dumps the power into his helmet, and the power makes him think faster, <laughs> which is just fucking shards. Yeah, great, this great. Is, this is probably one of those moments of like, no, 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 yeah, no. It's like, oh, why'd you didn't know? Yeah. Uh, uh, don't worry. You You think normally inside this time bubble forever now. Hooray. Just to make it worse, it occurs to him that Alabaster might also be aware. Um, yeah. Same as him. I mean, logically, yeah. But, I mean, he's probably experiencing stuff differently because we see, like, he's going through, like, a loop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where he, like, reforms and then breaks apart or something. Right. Yeah, I'll read this bit. Another 24 hours. It had, it, had, it had only been what felt like a day, and already the events that played and replayed in his mind became distorted. He couldn't help going back to them at the same time. He felt like his ego was disintegrating in this space where nothing could happen. He watched the world beyond the bubble, silhouettes moving throughout a rebuilding boardwalk, and tried to divine particulars or hints about the outcome, who might have survived. So, so first, of, like, like literally, I think his ego is dissolving because I think as he, as he uses his, his power to enhance the helmet, I, I suspect that he's doing the thing where he's sort of merging with the shards slash exporting his own cognition to the shard um yeah but but more thematically speaking this in this story wildbo has really played a lot with this this idea of of like a kind of madness a specific kind of madness that accompanies isolation yeah i mean which makes sense with everything we've been talking about right because we've been talking there's so much about connection there's so much about community there's so much about people coming together and finding strength in each other you know in worm too that was one of that was our protagonist's big goal that it it makes sense to like take isolation as this concept and explore what that can do to a person right right i mean and we're gonna have it the text is going to more or less explicitly juxtapose another character later on that 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 had a has a kind of an isolation issue and and i i would say victoria also has a bit of of an isolation you know pathology which was that she couldn't really speak um which i think impacted her quite a lot so yeah like you said it's it's kind of kind of everywhere 
Lots of cool fates worse than deaths. Yep. Yep. But before he can truly lose it, uh, he starts to form connections to the people that he sees visiting. Eventually, his helmet's powers give him a clarified perception of the events happening for a distance around the time bubble. And he becomes attentive to their lives. He focuses on these people. He cares about them. And, And this kind of gets him through it kind of preserves yeah. his sanity for a while um and eventually after a long i guess two years of this right yeah um, he witnesses this sudden almost instantaneous devastation of gold morning um and the people he's been following vacate the ruins and he's he, alone he's again. alone so it's so fucking metal in, <laughs> in a sad way yeah S- sad metal he mourned the world and he vowed that if this was it if this was the end perpetrated by the hands of their best hero, then he would retain some ability to explain what had happened if somehow something else were to come and pay a visit, a deity, an alien, a person from the past or from the future. Yeah, so he's like, he's finding all of these methods to stay himself, right? Um, first, he, he does it through connections to other people. And then here in the lack of connection, he says, um, I, I need to be able I need to be able to explain to people. Um, I can't lose myself fully because someone's going to need to explain what happened here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when the bubble pops, we see that the 10,000 times that Dauntless has snapped inside the bubble yeah. and his shard tried to reach out uh, to second trigger, I suppose, um, are all coming due now. The shard is hungry for connections, just like just like Sean is, and it immediately rips apart Alabaster, and then the process continues with Dauntless keeping a hand on the wheel. We don't really understand what that means, but something we're going to talk about uh, as the mm-hmm. shard eats up more connections, keeping itself consolidated. Yeah, and he he grows, and he's he's a giant man now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's seeable in all dimensions. Every single dimension sees this giant Colossus Dauntless sitting there with its head in the clouds, literally. Um, and yeah, and I think I think that hand on the wheel is portion is the most significant part of all this. And I think that that kind of ties into what Dauntless is now and perhaps maybe always was with a certain point of view. Like he has become a shard, mm-hmm. essentially. And 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 this is like Look at his power. Look at how his how his power works. His power is to grant powers to things. Yeah, that's what it does. His power does what a shard does to a human being. It grants it power. And the shard that is connected to him limited how much he could do that. It only gave him a certain amount of power. He could do it to each day. It also limited it to only uh, only mechanical things. It, it he can't do it to biological things. But that's what it is. His, he's giving power to stuff. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, it's fascinating that, that is, that is the uniqueness, I think, of the connection between the Shard and, and, and Dauntless here is that, um, they, they seem to have merged on a, on a very, very different level. And this is just accentuated by the explosiveness of the, all these second triggers and the, the broken triggers and everything that's happening here. So do you think that this is, do you think that this Titan is a, is physically a physical Shard that is now manifested like stepped out of of shard dimension into this sort of cross-dimensional manifestation of of dauntless's yes and no i mean like yes in the fact that like being multi multi-dimensional is is a 
shard trait, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the ability to exist in multiple dimensions is something they do. But yeah, he, he seems to be physically in, existing in all those dimensions also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, his, his, he describes his power as crystal like, right? Like right. his, when, when it, he's, he's, it's, so, yeah. I mean, it, it is, I think it is, it is a shard, mm-hmm. but it is dauntless right. and it is something new. Yeah. It's not the same. I, th- I think I, I think I pretty much agree with all that. It's not, it's not just, it's not just a shard stepping through into reality or, or into these yeah. realities. It's more, it's more complicated than that, but yeah, similar concept. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this, this interesting line that we kind of touched on before was like, he's talking about, um, he's talking about the, as, as he's triggering it and as his shard is looking out for these connections, um, he says that that wasn't how this worked. He didn't get to have connections that hadn't been the unspoken bargain. He'd apparently struck. He didn't get the tools to better cut and cauterize wounds and save his son's mother for nothing. So this is the part where I think the text is trying to imply here that like, um, his, his, inability to form connections to people or at least receive those connections is tied to uh, the shard and the, that that bargain that he struck with with the shard to he, fine you want it this way you get powers here's the price for that mm-hmm. so there's this bit that follows pretty soon after that that i wasn't really sure what it means that I, I don't think we're meant to i think it's supposed to be evocative and, and we're going to figure it out later but basically yeah. he's, he's kind of reaching out and it says the connection came and the connection stayed he saw enough and this, that's two different paragraphs. So clearly, like, yeah. he saw enough is meant to be very important. But it's like, I don't know, what did he see? He, he's reaching out with his senses. He sees something that he, that he wants. Is it just, I think, I think earlier you said maybe it was just Sean, it was just um, Addison. Addison. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't, yeah, maybe that, that, that could be yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because both those words are italicized to emphasize them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the connection came and the connection stayed emphasized. He saw enough emphasized mm-hmm. um yeah and and i don't know i mean i think it would be nice and neat to say like enough was just we're my boy uh-huh. um but it could be something much much different than that yeah yeah uh so we kind of zoom over uh to victoria um and the harbingers explain a little bit what's going on um but so so one thing that occurred to me was <laughs> Are we are we actually zooming over to Victoria, or is this still Dauntless's point of view, and he's just like omniscient now? Yeah, that's really interesting because after I saw you write this, I went back and reread through the chapter again, and there's really no indication in that section of the chapter that we are in anyone that's in the scene's point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not we're not in Victoria's point of view. We don't hear Victoria's normal thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're in one of the number boys' point of view. I don't think we're in capricorn's point of view so i mean i think you're right i think this is we we have remained in dauntless's point of view we are just observing a conversation that's happening because he is everywhere and can see everything like he he dumped so much power into his helmet that even through the time bubble he was allowed or or able to sense and understand and see everyone in the short area around him and with that bubble gone that power has extended out in every direction um and so yeah i mean i think i think we're still we're still with dauntless we're just observing this one scene yeah yeah we may not be right about that but but wildbo does usually i would say more often than not if if there is an interlude that switches points of view it is via some kind of gimmick where you ultimately realize you're not actually switching point of view 
So yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Plus, I mean, even if this was a switched point of view, it's it's not clear who's it's 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 yeah. not at all clear who's it switched to, and that is very very different. So. It, it's basically third person omniscient, like, like right? Which, which yeah yeah so, <laughs> right yeah third person omniscient, which we will now call dauntless. <laughs> yes, the the, the dauntless perspective. Yes, <laughs> um, and of course the Capricorn. Yeah, no, the Harbinger is explaining. You get things meant for endings at the beginning, like Z, and that connects to E, which connects to everything. And a few steps later, nothing. So, of course, all those being cheeky, it's right. Z, E, all, and then, you know, some steps and then none. Yeah. So. Poor, poor chapter F. <laughs> no one cares about that one. Yeah, it's just, just the f- fuck. Yeah. <laughs> It's just cradle. It's just cradle. <laughs> yeah, cradle gets skipped over. It goes out like a like a bum. Yeah. I mean, this is I I think this is great though. Like it's not um it, it's it's a fun way of taking the 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 concept that you're exploring through the chapters and and making the structure of your book line up to that right like mm-hmm. we we that's what we did we instantly said why z is the end of the chapter it's it's almost it's falling back into our our meta analysis right where like we're like the number boy is basically saying hey look this is the structure the book normally follows normally like x y and z are the interludes that fall at the end of the the arc but we didn't do that this time. That's weird. What's going on there? <laughs> it's like he's almost talking to us, the reader. Um, it's, yeah. it's it's fun. I like it. Yeah. Well, and and I think he's you you are asking that question when you see Z comes first. You're like, what does this mean? It just definitely right. means something. Um, and I mean, yeah. it clearly spells Zelfnanex. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly, Scott. Um, and then we look over. We see Tristan, who is now whole. Uh, as soon Yay. as as soon as he hears that Dauntless has been aware and stationary this whole time, he switches out to Byron because <laughs> he's like oh, guilt, the guilt. Right, right. This the, the, that idea of uh, remember when I did that to someone? Yeah. Um, and yeah, he immediately switches out. He's like, uh, I feel so bad that you get to have control now. Uh, which again, I think you know we we talked last week a lot about all our characters seem pretty bad off, and which are the the worst bad off characters? Um. But we, Tristan is recovered now and we see like he didn't like his his lesson from all this bad stuff happened wasn't be like, fuck you. I was out for so long. I get to be I was I was locked up for so long. I get to be out now. We see that the they're more frequent switching um, their Tristan's higher level of respect for his brother remains intact. Right. Like like in that moment, I I, I feel like Tristan's thought was like, he, I, th- I think he just says, fuck. And then he switches. Yeah. And that's just like I, I I want Byron to be able to like express what he's feeling right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, then Byron because, says fuck. <laughs> because yeah. even though even though Tristan experiences being trapped in somewhere where you can only view, um, Byron has a much much more acute understanding of that experience. Yeah, and one okay. So I don't want to dwell on this forever, but the fact that they <laughs> both they both say fuck, which is kind of funny. It's kind of kind of comic. Yeah, but like. When they when they're both having the same reactions to something, that's really cool to me because the idea of the Capricorn brothers being on the same wavelength about things basically means that all of the reasons why they have conflict over who's in the driver's seat kind of go away because if they're both doing the thing that they both want to be doing, 
then it matters much less who's actually in control of the body and they can just switch back and forth, you know, without, without really caring too much because when they're in the backseat, they're still kind of there and, and, and they're still kind of doing the thing they want to be doing and, yeah. and they're doing it together. And that's, that's, that's awesome. Like, especially when you compare it to how they were, you know, to, to how bad they were doing before and how everything was this struggle. And I just, so like just little things like them, one of them says fuck and they switch and the other one has exactly the same reaction. I'm like, yes. Right. <laughs> I, I love that. I just love it. Yeah. I like that a lot too. I mean, it's kind of like if you're, if you're going to watch the same movie, it doesn't matter if you switch every 30 seconds because you're both sitting down watching the movie, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas if you want to go see different movies, then suddenly the, the possession of the control matters a lot more. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Dauntless finds some something he's looking for uh, towards some some mysterious <laughs> end, uh, and when he tries to speak, it's inadvertently very destructive. So he chooses to wait, and eventually Addison arrives uh, with his wife and a baby in her tummy. Yeah, I mean, the my assumption on the mysterious thing that finding something he's looking for was specifically his son. He said he wanted to reach out find his son he founds him and then he attempted to say hey and just destroyed a whole bunch of machines um with his method of talking yeah right and, <laughs> but 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 it worked enough to get addison to finally come to him um i really love i really love this beat uh that you that you point out here that uh that addison um has a wife yeah and 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 dauntless points out it's not Mo, which was the girl that he was hoping that sh- that his son would get together with, which disappointed Dauntless. Um, but he's happy for his son anyway. And it's I think it's a really great way. Like one of the big questions of this stuff is how much of Dauntless is Dauntless, right? How much of the person that's this big giant colossus standing in front of the universe is still the guy that we met? And this little tiny bit of like, oh, he didn't he didn't get with the girl that I hoped he'd get with is like very, very a really great way to establish that besides all the other changes, besides all the things that have happened to him, um, there's, that's still like quintessentially dauntless yeah, in there. Right. Like, it's, it's still, it's still Sean who, who was fist pumping that his, that his son might date the girl that, that he approved of. And yeah. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's really great. Um, yeah. So the text says dauntless, son was okay. And that was what was important. After a couple of hours, they decided to leave satisfied it thought to that kernel of dauntless so this is very interesting Mm -hmm. the text Mm -hmm. is very subtle here throughout this section but there are indications that whatever this titan is it's only partly sean in the physical sense sean is still present he's just buried in tons of crystal which is terrifying um the broken trigger hasn't like killed him it hasn't destroyed him at most he has a hand on the wheel like it says um and after all, he was the one who refused the full measure of the power in the first place. So there's, I just think it's fascinating how this, how the the narration has this, you know, this it, this mysterious it, and then there's this kernel of Dauntless, and there's this duality to this being that that now exists in place of Dauntless. Yeah, I I love that, and it, it once again, it's it's unique. Um, he started unique from, from his trigger event. And even through this, he is unique in a, in a very special kind of way. This, this hand on the wheel thing that no, we've never seen this in any other broken trigger. We've never seen the person remain. Um, they either died or were just like annihilated. Right. Um, and I mean, it's kind of like, 
it's kind of like the the link between shard and human is maybe similar to Kepri like when we remember in, in spec when we saw like the that shift happen and uh Taylor kind of slowly start to fade and and queen administrator kind of slowly take over um it's a it's a similar kind of connection i think but the difference is that sean because of the person he is because of uh the things that he wants and the and the choices he made and the desires for connections for specific connections instead of just instead of just like a march like i want to be connected to everything um his desire differs that way that he retains himself at least a bit and he mm-hmm. retains control at least a bit. And that uh, it's probably going to matter a whole lot. Right. Because at least, it, you know, the shard, whatever it is, is asking him, are you satisfied instead of just doing what it yeah. wants? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It can't. It it clearly like can't do. I mean, it's yeah, it's basically saying, OK, can we do what I want now? I gave you this. Can we do what I want now? Yeah. Um, which which means that it is not in control. Right. And, and then we have this transition where it goes from he to it. So it says he was. A terrible weight and an even more terrible pain had been lifted somehow by that relatively brief visit. It remained where it was, waiting. It waited and watched even as the forces arrayed around it, readied for an assault, panicked, then retreated. So it's, it's basically he, in, in one paragraph, hands hands off the reins to it in the next paragraph. Right, yeah. It's almost as if like that question of satisfied, he was, and therefore he said, okay, I'll step back. But but with the understanding that <clears throat> I think he still can grab hold of that wheel anytime he wants. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we I don't I don't we don't know that. Right. But I, th- I feel like you're right. Um, and I'm just I can't stop quoting things because these are just too, <laughs> too good. The reason for the panic and the imminent assault hadn't been him, but another guest. She settled on one arm, comparatively tiny, a weight on one arm and one and on one shoulder. Feathered wings draped his arm. And she cried, and the cries were pitched to pull at the heartstrings and to tug at the mind. He couldn't step into another room or walk away to leave those cries behind to find a chance to breathe. Oh, my God. Yeah, and that's, of course, calling us back to the start of the chapter um, with him stuck in the van with his crying child. And now yep. the Seamurg has popped on his shoulder and said, hey, remember that? Yep. Let's do that again. Yeah, let me um, let me just be the like tattletale with her with her brother let me just yeah. uh, help you out help you through this yeah and and of course uh the one thing he says is he's so so tired and he's so tired and he's at this he's so tired that he might be willing to believe what anyone tells him <laughs> right um, and here's the seamurg to be like oh well let me tell you some things yeah so it's a very ominous end to this whole thing yeah you know it is but i can't i can't be super like depressed about it because i i, I don't know maybe i'm reading it wrong but i found the actual kind of last line to be pretty heartwarming he mm-hmm. had his son and all the people he'd come to love who loved him and visited him in his bubble and that was the most significant thing and that's um, like to me I, I almost read that as or i i do read that as he's actually capable of of accepting the love of, of the people who who loved him in return who yeah, came to that- visit him in the bubble yeah, you're absolutely right that that is he he is he is maybe finally able to receive that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. That's a, that is a change. And I think that is hopeful because, yeah, there's this this idea that the Seamurg is here. Um, he, he's battling against 
his shard in some ways. Um, now he's got the Seamurk here trying to, to fuck his shit up. But this idea that he's the guy who, uh, when a shard connected to him and said, look at all this you could have, he's the guy that said, no, all I need is this. All I need is her, Kelly, and and I refuse. And the shard said, fine. Yeah. Um, and now, once again, all he's saying is here, like, he had his son and he had all the people who he loved and who loved him. And that's all he needs. That is the most significant thing that is more significant than this power. That is more significant than, than this, this connection, this, this hub that, that is hopefully more significant than whatever this fucking bird lady is telling me. Um, that is the most significant thing. And as long as that remains the most significant thing, uh, this ominousness can just fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's hope, right? I think that's yeah. the key thing. Cause it could have ended like a paragraph earlier and then it would just be like, Oh fuck. But, right, but no, he, right. he gives us that bit of hope. Yeah. All right. Let's move into 12.x, which is not going to be any less dense than that one. <laughs> really? I'm just going to just run right through this one. Not a lot happens. Yeah, just breeze through, you know, who cares about Narwhal? <laughs> apparently, apparently everyone, actually. Uh, um, yes. So, uh, yeah. So off the bat, let's talk about how this is another one of those rare multi-person point of view chapters and yeah. what that might mean so like we just we just talked about how how true multi-person chapters are are actually really rare in wild bow stories i can think of one off the top of my head that wasn't some kind of fake out where like you're actually following the point of view of the Seamurg who's following Dr. Mother <laughs> via the clairvoyant or something. Yeah. Or vice versa or what? <laughs> who, who knows? Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. This, this is not a fake out. We are just legitimately like cutting from character to character as we move through the story. Um, there's, there's really no gimmick here really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting because we're we're at this we're at this point in the story where we've just finished a big part. The the threat of March um, that is going to be coming to a close here has been a conflict since the very beginning of the story. The idea the idea of Cradle and and Rain's cluster has been a long standing conflict, and and over the past few arcs has been the the focal point of the story. And this is all coming to an end. And so we've got the end of this one conflict. We've got the other conflict literally looming above our heroes. And in this moment, we're kind of just going through a series of vignettes. We're just popping in on people and just seeing how people are doing and, and, and resolving some things and setting up some other things and recontextualizing other things. Um, so I think it it is really the perfect, if you're going to have a non gimmicky, just jump around from point of view interlude, it really feels like the perfect time to have it because, Uh, um, I want to see what's up with everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We just, round all the bases you know i i could impose a gimmick on it which is that the last chapter being 12.9 has broken all of the patterns is broken the structure the structure is broken it's a structural yeah. issue so now there's no there's no uh rules the the rules are broken you the rules can, have changed the rules have changed you can jump between characters in a single chapter because because of thoughtless yeah there you I mean, go who knows if next arc it's not even going to be first person Victoria point of view anymore. It, nobody knows. Nobody well, knows. I mean, literally everyone but me knows. Yeah, well, right now. But, but um, I'm going to pretend like no one's read the chapter yet. Yeah, I'm going to just be poker face because you know <laughs> that's what I do. Um, so yeah, 
We start out following Preston, uh, who had who I had almost but not quite forgotten about. Preston, the girl from the train, who is now a huge diehard fan of Breakthrough and specifically of Antares and Swan Song. Um, it it it's very obvious, Matt, that you've clearly almost forgotten who this person is <laughs> because her name is Presley. Did Matt. I write? Why did I write that? Why I did I know. say that out loud? And why didn't you fix it? All right, you got me back for the fire axe thing. <laughs> I saw you write that, and I was like, I could, I could fix it, or Good. I could just write this into the script. Good. <laughs> no, I don't have to feel guilty anymore. Good. 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 Uh, yeah, I love Presley, Matt. Um, I love this character, and 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 it's not just because of who she is; it's it's more because of what she represents. Like we have this this months and months ago. Victoria was desperately trying to prove this point to Ashley, right? Like Victoria has this way of looking at the world and Ashley had this other way of looking at the world. And Victoria was utterly convinced that her way was better and Ashley's way wasn't as good. And to prove this point to her, she said, look, we're going to make this interaction. We're going to spend time on this interaction with this one random girl. And I'm going to prove to you that good interactions propagate and and they they matter. They do matter how you treat people matters and then we then we uh jump forward here Mm -hmm. and we see that yes that interaction did matter that 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 interaction mattered so much uh this thing that was paramount to ashley's journey towards something beyond just being like a posturing kind of badass villain um has come to a moment that where this girl this girl presley uh like she she loves them. She, she loves, she calls them the team. She has like, she collects trading cards, but like the picture, the picture that she has is like center in her room in this, this holy place. Like she loves swan song and, and Victoria and it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was really sweet that she, she also, you know, she loves swan song because swan song sort of gave her the cold shoulder. And then, and then Victoria went out of her way to like, um, smooth that over and it seems yeah. to have worked because she she loves both of them she's yeah both of them are, are in the place of honor kind of and thus I mean thus we have shown that Victoria was right and I think you know we, we said this was like a an important moment for Ashley and in her growth but I think it was an important moment for Victoria too right like Victoria thought she was right but maybe doubted it a little bit Mm-hmm. Like she really she really wanted to believe that that her view on the world was the right one. And I think a lot of a lot of proving this point to Ashley was not just to prove Ashley wrong, but for her own sense of of balance and 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 her own view of what the world is to to say that, yes, I, the thing I believe is the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't know. I love it. I love Presley. I love this whole thing. And let's just move on because I'm just going to keep talking. OK, about it. OK. So yeah, Presley has a cute kid argument with your mom, and then their domestic scene is disrupted by the sight of the Titan on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love this bit of writing and this kind of the, the psychology behind it, as well as the prose. With it, there was a horrible feeling in her middle. It was like when the Endbringers came. All her life, the years had been punctuated by these big, shadowy monsters that came and changed the tone of the day and the week after in what she'd once heard a bad comedian call the opposite of holidays. It had always come with a bad feeling, mixed with a bad relief that it had been so far away, the kind of relief that made you feel bad. Except she didn't feel that relief now, and she didn't feel any less bad. Yeah. 
So, right. so Presley here, uh, and this entire vignette really serves to kind of show us what the, the, the a segment of the non-powered populace, uh, is feeling to Mount Dauntless, right? Um, and, and the thing, the thing we see them connected to through Presley is the Embringer attacks. Mm-hmm. This is like the Embringer attacks, but without any of the relief, without any of this, oh, it's not near me this time. We're okay. Just this, this ever present, never going away fear of, of something, uh, like yeah. Endbringers, but on steroids. And so, so we're, we're establishing that people are freaking out. Yeah. Right. And, uh, the, <laughs> It's not like this is the it's not like this is the only bad thing that's happened recently, but it's just like at, at this point, you know, like one thing I thought was interesting was was that um, her mom says, like, stay here and then goes to find the dad. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was and I was thinking like, man, no way would I I, I would like take my kid with me to go downstairs <laughs> and, and then I was thinking about this and I was like, if you lived in this world, you'd probably just be like, ah, shit, not again. Yeah. All right, let me go. Let me go consult with your dad. Like it would be your your the the magnitude of of everything is just off the charts, and so you're just like uh, I can't I can't take my kid with me every time a disaster happens. Right. Yeah. Um. But anyway, I just I, I it was funny because I had one reaction and then I kind of thought about it and was like, no, actually, that's probably all right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think like the one one of the thing that that part you just read also establishes is just the mundanity of them. Right. It reminds us of how part of everyone's lives the Endbringers where the fact that a comedian is writing jokes about when the Endbringers come it's just so routine and normal um that it reminds you of of this life that that maybe these characters had a brief two-year respite from this unstoppable fear that is around them at all times and now it's back yeah and it's back worse because the relief isn't there yeah yeah I just love this notion that comedians would be making jokes about the inbringers because they totally yeah. would. Absolutely. Yeah, they would, but yeah. really, really bad for him. Really yeah. bad for him. Yeah, right. So Preston texts, God damn it. <laughs> I wrote it every time. <laughs> Presley, Presley. Text. Why, why fix your script now? It's too late. No, it's not too late. No one will know. No one has to know. No one has to know. They're all going to know. Presley texts the team and gets a response uh, that they're waiting and seeing. It didn't ease her worries exactly. But if Antares was replying, then things couldn't be that bad. Yeah. Um, Like, Presley loves superheroes, right? These superheroes specifically. And Victoria's reply, as minor as it was, represents doing what superheroes do best. It gives Presley hope. It doesn't ease her worries completely, but it gives her hope. It gives her courage. And not every human being in this story is going to be like Presley. I'm sure the anti-cape sentiment is out there and we'll be using Dauntless in this event as just another example of these damn capes and 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 their troublemaking and, and look what they're doing. And this is just another example of, but we have someone here who threw a small reply that victoria did not have to give like she's busy dealing with shit on her own and this girl texts her just to ask what's up and she responds um the small moment the small choice makes this girl feel a little bit better and that's what victoria can do that's what her group can do that's what being a superhero can mean and i think that's going to be so important to everything that happens 
you know, for the rest of this book, because that is that is that is the ideal our characters strive for. That's great. Yeah, that's perfect. You've you've exactly expressed why this is important, why this character really should be at the top of this chapter. You know, it's 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 tempting to be like she's not a she's not a parahuman. She's not important. Why do we care what's going on with Presley? And it's like, well, this is very important to what to what Victoria is trying to do. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I love it. Good point. So we skip then to our next character, and at this point, it's evident that we're jumping through a bunch of side characters who you might never expect to get their moment in the spotlight. So first it was Presley, and now it's Candy, uh, who's using Darlene's power to help Lookout use her keyboard. Ouch. Yeah, it's... uh, The pain there. I know, Uh, they're all sharing connections so they can... Oh yeah, speaking of connections... Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a lot of connections going on in this. It's almost like it's a theme or something. Almost like it's some kind of theme. <laughs> D- Darlene and Chicken Little are also in the room. Aiden is sedated in the room with them. Um, and Darlene is curled up by him in a mass of blankets. I just want to say mm-hmm. um, the book never, ever, ever describes what Aiden's face actually looked like. Uh-huh. And I'm very thankful for that. Thank yeah. you, Wildbo, for holding that back. <laughs> not doing that we never see his face uh-huh. awesome um and yeah i'm i'm actually like really excited to see this group of kids like all just hanging out together um even though some of them scare me a little bit this this group is is very joyful yeah um they're uh, that's interesting because they're terrifying also but yeah no they're they're happy it's good to see them it's good to see them happy yeah, man yeah they're, they're swinging back and forth just like they always been yeah like uh oh, best friends uh oh, death uh, but, yeah. Uh, death. Yeah. Well, and this is, I mean, it's cool that we get to see inside Candy's head because Candy's one of these characters who's kind of been um, uh, foreboding. Um, like, every, sure. l- l- yeah. l- I mean, that's, and that's par for the course, but we, we see that she's got kind of a, a kernel of goodness herself. Okay, Candy said, help in, gripe out. When people were hurt, it was important to help those closer to the problem and the hurt. And any complaints were saved for those further from it than she was. It was a rule that Samuel's mom had imparted on them before her violent end. Um, and this is sweet because, like, it's she, yeah. she, she also cares about helping people. Like, it's it, it wasn't necessarily an obvious part of her personality. But, yeah, it's it's that's cool. Yeah. And this is a real strategy in, in psychology called ring theory. I think I saw someone posted about that um, on the subreddit as well. Um, it's where you just basically draw like concentric rings around the source of the badness and you send good in further down the rings and you send all your complaining. Basically you comfort the people that need to be comforted, uh, that are worse off than you. And you gripe to the people that are, uh, slightly less worse off than you. And that's how focusing on care and griping goes the other way. Um, Wow. So, I mean, it's a real thing. And I just I just love that, like, we're, we're we've seen like these kids are you feel so bad for these kids because this mom gave them this real psychological strategy uh, because she cared about them and she's in this terrible situation. It just makes you fucking hate Heartbreaker even more than you already did yeah, somehow. Right. I hope somebody kills him. <laughs> um yeah, no, that's really cool. I mean, that I, I've, I've never heard that. It's funny. I saw the name of that post, and I thought they were referring to the uh, chiastic yeah. structure. Yeah, <laughs> which, I mean, makes sense when you're talking about a book that, that when you see ring theory. But, yeah, I mean, like, if you, if you look at it drawing, it's like it's basically uh, 
person that's the worst off in the middle and then rings around them mm-hmm. of each each person who is a slightly mm-hmm. slightly less affected slightly less affected and comfort in shit out i mean it just seems like intuitive when you say it it's like sure, yeah. surely that's how humans have been behaving for thousands of years but it's cool to formalize it that yeah, way Yeah, it's just a way of visualizing the idea of help people that need it complain to <laughs> yeah. take help from people that know you need it <laughs> like that's, help, that's basically it. help in gripe out easy to remember yeah yeah cool um so candy is what she's doing and she's helping guide one of lookout's camera drones to spy on beaker and they catch them chatting about dinah and contessa and among others which is just wild but just fucking with us <laughs> because i mean it's this it is i mean it's it's important because like we are we are establishing that the mayor and and that group is is discussing Dinah and Contessa, which is important information for us to know. But then it's like Kenzie's like, eh, change this channel. It's like it's like if something really important is happening <laughs> on the news and you just change a channel away from it. Yeah, right. I mean, and I'm not sure if we're supposed to take it as like she was recording that and then they'll look at it later and realize it was important or if it was literally yeah. just Wild Bo being like, no. <laughs> It could be both. Could be both, yeah. <laughs> so Candy broaches the topic of whether Lookout is romantically interested in Aiden and Lookout. So more text because I just love goddamn everything about these chapters. Yeah, we 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 copy pasted a lot of text into our script this time. I'm gonna say that's why it's so long. Yeah. Nothing else. Okay, sure. I'm being good. Lookout said, "Quiet, and I won't get in the way." I'm being good was the kind of thing that made far too much sense to Candy. She'd heard similar things from a lot of her siblings and cousins, which was their term for the sisters and brothers by another mother. She'd even heard the line about being good from some of their quirkier and more messed up, unpowered siblings. And I just, I I love, (laughs) I just love that so much. Just this idea of being able to convey like, I'm going to make myself small and inoffensive and I'm going to say I'm being good as the way of describing that. Yeah, it, it it beautifully quickly summarizes Kenzie in a way that Candy immediately understands her on a level that she hasn't before. Mm-hmm. This one simple moment, this one simple phrase that is so sad that, that she feels like she has to speak that way just out of experience. Um, she gets her at a level that she never did before. And that's it's 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 heartbreaking, but it's beautiful. Yeah. And it, it kind of gives you some some hope that that Kenzie can get along with these heartbroken because yeah that's that's another point of contention in the chapter um i i like this this bit where kenzie admits that she had kind of hoped that aiden was gay because then romance wouldn't be an issue that she had to worry about Mm -hmm. but now that she's learned that he's not she's kind of relieved um and uh, i mean this this kind of contradiction strikes me as is very realistic and resonant especially to be having it especially like the kinds of feelings to be having at that age yeah i mean you're kind of like just starting to have these kinds of feelings for the first time right mm-hmm. and you just have no idea what to do with them it's like this this completely foreign new experience for you mm-hmm. and it scares you a little bit and so i think it's natural to like invent a reason why that doesn't matter yeah but also to contradict yourself at the same time and be happy that that reason when that reason why is is confirmed to be false yeah there's um, absolutely two different parts of you that are in conflict and they want yeah. opposite things yeah yeah it is, is I, it's perfect i love it i love it um i also want to point out in that little speech the most heartbreaking thing in the world which is where she said i always thought maybe he liked boys like one of capricorn's brothers or like my dad like some people i knew did do yeah that's 
the fact that she still thinks of them as her her fathers yeah is like the most just emotionally devastating thing in the world to me like i i read that and i was like oh my god like yeah. this i i love her so much this poor girl yeah i know it's uh, i agree i agree want to give her a hug and and that she she felt it was important to switch her past tense yeah to present tense yeah yeah Ugh. i agree so lookout captures the signature that reverses the severing effect and she implements it um because she's the most important and skilled member of breakthrough and the most valuable <laughs> uh the damage is reversed lookout regains her fingers darlene her legs aiden his um face i guess <laughs> yay everyone is happy and darlene bursts into tears when she sees that aiden is okay but quickly everyone realizes that uh with horror that flow is now ambulatory and uh they have to rush over and talk her down from doing horrible things i love that because there's this moment where like candy says everyone she had a bad feeling and you're like wait what does that mean and you, like in the back of my mind i was like which bad guy was also chopped up that's now free? And uh-huh. it's like, no, it's just just their sister. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who who they basically were 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 almost relieved that she couldn't move around before. Yeah. So I mean, how do you feel about like the reversing of the cradle tech? Because I was a bit surprised at first how apparently easy it seemed once the signature was caught right um like on the one hand i don't i didn't want there to be like a long drawn out process here like i like the the fight with the cradle is over he's captured like i just want all the characters back in one piece because that part of the story is over like i that's what i want i don't need this long drawn out thing but i was just so surprised that it was just kind of so relatively simply done so she just she's just able to make it happen and then it just works on everyone everywhere right away. Well, yeah, I mean, I maybe I was a little bit surprised that it was that easy, but um, or, or that fast, I should say. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that it was easy. It was that I, I guess what what I'll say is that I think Wildbo has a great sense of when he needs to throw us a bone, and I think it would have actually been pretty um, anticlimactic and and. A little bit disappointing if the next chapter just started and everyone was fine and it was just like oh yeah we figured that out <laughs> you know so so like it, it's nice and satisfying and emotional especially like it's happening right in front of you darlene bursts into tears it's great um and and that wouldn't have worked if it weren't some kind of solution that could kind of be implemented suddenly so i think yeah. just just like storytelling wise it works out better this way i i agree and i think um I mean, one of the other reasons is we're not in Kenzie's head, right? We're in we're in Candy's head and Candy doesn't understand anything that's going on. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm thinking in my head, well, what is like, what does this have to do with cameras? And it's like if we were in Kenzie's head, I'm sure she would have a completely succinct, logical way to explain exactly how how she did this. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I, I it's funny because I'm not really complaining and I wouldn't want it to be the other way. Like I wouldn't want them to draw out the process of everyone repairing them. And I think you're right that just hopping to the next arc um, and everyone's better. I don't think that would be good either. So like I'm absolutely fine with the way it is. I just remember my first time reading it being like, oh, huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I liked it. it. Do we learn, do we learn how the navigators are doing in this chapter? Like does it, is it mentioned they say they're better and recovering okay. is really all they say. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I couldn't remember. Okay, cool. Yeah. But Matt, uh-huh. you you were just gonna you were just gonna skip over 
the most important revelation of this entire fucking chapter. Nay, this whole book. <laughs> there is a cape named Fire Axe. <laughs> what? Um, I mean, who, uh, who are they? Uh, what? What? What is their super? Is it? Is their power to? Is it an axe on fire? Well, I like I like that the text specifically informs us that the f- that the power must actually involve actual fire because it sets off smoke alarms <laughs> rather than just being say an axe with like a red handle and red head. Look, uh, the people want to know. Uh-huh. When is fire axe stepping into the the the, the sunlight? Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm I mean, I assume that Fire Axe is going to become a very important character. Some would argue, some, I don't know, uh-huh. any, any, but some, uh, the most important character. You know, um, we do have a, a lot of a lot of visual themes, a lot of concepts in this story. And mm-hmm. and the, the dichotomy between between, you know, fire and ice or, or red and blue has been a prominent one. And, and I just can't help but feel like Fire Axe represents like one very important pole of the story, like a, like a, the North star of the story, you know, I I think you're right. And in a story all about recovery, I think me recovering from my fire axe incident, the only way to do that really is to make a Cape named fire axe, who is the best one in the world. Yeah. And it's almost like he's glad fire axe is going to rescue you by, by smashing through the door to the cell that you're trapped in with some kind of, axe that is on fire that is on fire right okay good not just a normal fire axe all right glad 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 we solved the story yeah we did it there we go um and this section with candy kind of wraps up with lookout revealing with a characteristic smile that she might not be able to stay on the team because she keeps getting horrifically injured all the time Candy suggests that the two of them, Darlene and Aiden, form their own team and contract out to Breakthrough and uh, the Undersiders probably. Yeah, um, the, there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about here, I think, yeah. at the end. Like, I love that Candy is perceptive enough to pick up on how jarring Kenzie's smile is. She doesn't quite get it, but she definitely notices that there's something off about her smile. Um I think I think that like we we spent a lot of this chapter kind of having Candy grow to understand Kenzie on a level um, that she hadn't before, and I think that's a perfect way of like encapsulating that is that that Kenzie gives her her you know typical inappropriate or not inappropriate but smile that doesn't mean happiness, Mm -hmm. and Candy's like, well, that was weird. Yeah, seems like the heartbroken might be uniquely poised to be able to understand Lookout and her her issues right which i think gets us to that that moment at the end right because kenzie's smile goes away the second the idea of forming the group starts right it says maybe lookout said the smile dropping from her face could work so this is something that she definitely would be into doing and the question i have for you is is that good (laughs) i see that's the thing is i can uh it's it's a I think we may need a new word, Scott, because we have we have whore awesome. <laughs> okay. Okay. And but I've noticed a trend that there's also um whore wholesome. <laughs> Which is oh, that sounds like a great idea. The heartbroken and Kenzie 
Like they have a lot in common and they could help each other with some of their issues. But also, oh my God, the heartbroken and Kenzie together yeah. on the same team. Oh God. So Yeah, I mean, we've had this love triangle blooming and, and putting them all together constantly seems like it would only um, exacerbate that situation. But yeah, I want, I want, I think it'd be funny. They'd probably have an adorable name. Yeah. 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 It's, it's kind of like what's already going on with the heartbroken, except even more like elevated because now Kenzie's involved. And we close this part of the chapter with chicken large screeching as these thoughts of the team joining occurs to everyone. Yeah. And I, I, in the back of my head, I'm like, is that like a screech of warning? Like, no, don't fucking do it. No, no, it's a screech of, of triumph. I'm fucking psyched. Every time eagles screech, it's out of triumph. I see. Yeah. They don't have any other emotions actually. Yeah. So it's science. <laughs> um, yeah. So that wraps up the candy point of view. Uh-huh. Um, so then we skip to Narwhal, a character who I think we all kind of wanted to find out more about, although we may not have known it. Um, it's, so it's a minor thing, but Wildbo just immediately tells us this is Narwhal. Like, it's the yeah. first word. Um, and I think I think that's because there simply wouldn't be any benefit to making us wonder who this is and, like, puzzle it out. And it's just one of those cases where it's just like, yep, let's just get to... It's it's Narwhal. We're going to talk about this Narwhal. We're getting to know Narwhal now. Yeah, I um, think you're right. Um, it's It's because his choices to do this and not to do this all have purpose behind them. Yeah. Like we're going to jump from this point of view to one in the very next one that the, who the point of view is, is hidden until almost the very end of the entire interaction. Um, and it's because he's doing something very specific with that hiding of it. Whereas here, the, the point of the chapter is not that right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, so we just, you're absolutely right. We just, this is Narwhal. Here we go. Um, because the, the twist of this chapter is not who the point of view is. The twist of this chapter is, oh, um, that's not the person I thought that they were. Yeah. 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 Well said. Well said. Um, I'm glad you agree, actually. Um, so, yeah, basically, Narwhal watches uh, the Undersiders and Breakthrough part once again becoming separate teams. And we kind of get uh, we're immediately surprised by by kind of what's going on with Narwhal. Her heart was pounding, breathing was hard, and getting past it seemed impossible. She kept her shoulders back and square, her feet securely beneath her, and hands at her sides. People looked to her, and if she let the facade crack, then it would affect them. And this is fascinating because I've always seen Narwhal as exactly the way she projects herself to be. Like big, brave hero, forthright and responsible, and so on. Here we see, as usual, it's more complicated than that. And she even has this digression about how she's going to get in trouble with the paper pushers because the loss to March will look really bad on paper. Mm-hmm. And and how powers like March's don't don't uh, seem as difficult to fight as they are. And she's like full of of kind of like doubt and, and anxiety. And and she's like she's like literally emotionally upset in this moment. And she's she's just acting tough. Yeah, it is really a big surprise. And I think. um I think one of the cool things about this is I think a lot of the readers of the story projected a lot onto Narwhal. She's a popular character. People really like her. Um, She's pretty cool looking and has a cool power. So that makes sense. Um, She seems like she's always like got her head on straight and and going. Um, But we really knew nothing about her at all. And now suddenly we do. And. Wow. Yeah. Not what we expected. Um, Kind of all an illusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like those force fields were protecting herself yeah 
Yeah, yeah, um, well said. Yeah. And I love that some of the first things we hear her say is she's looking up at Dauntless and it says the figure that had once been Dauntless loomed above them, dormant, quiet, alone, as alone as any of them were, which is like a pretty dour, like depressing look, right? Like it's 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 immediately starting off with this just like oh, we're all we're all alone. Yeah. Um, and of course, it has a little bit of irony to it, right? Because Dauntless is not alone right he literally he's literally connected to everything yeah um and of course every single cape is technically never alone either because they've got this alien riding around in their head um so it it, it is it has had a little hint of irony in it but um yeah she's this person that is on the verge of a panic attack she can't let anyone know that um this this mass of crystals that protects her from the outside environment that has reshaped her and protected her um is protecting her personality too and, and I love this moment where it says every time she moves, every time she shifts, the crystals move and it briefly exposes part of her to the elements. A little bit of her is exposed. And I think that's how she feels. Right. She feels especially in this moment that like if I if I do something wrong, if I if there's even a little crack, if there's even a little movement, part of me will be exposed and I can't let that happen. Yeah. Right. And, and the places where the ear does touch her, it's distinctly uncomfortable. Yeah. Cold. Um, yeah. she, 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 she never, she never explicitly compares herself to Dauntless, does she? Even though it's sort of, I want to say obvious, although it honestly didn't occur to me until this moment that, um, she's this crystal covered woman looking up at this crystal covered man. Yeah. Um, like, like it, it's force fields, but she describes them as crystals repeatedly. Yeah. So, um, I, she doesn't know. Um, yeah. but I think it is interesting that, that how, how often crystalline structures repeat with these shards. Yeah, right. right. seem to like those those crystal structures. Yeah, and crystals split light and refract it. Uh-huh. Yeah. They do that. They do. Um, so yeah, this is interesting. <laughs> Weld had arrived. He was the kind of young man she would have drafted to any of her teams at any point. Driven, conscientious, kind, and just wounded enough that there was something to look after where she would have him under her wing without feeling like his talents weren't being wasted leading a team elsewhere. So that's just just a little bit fucked up, huh? Just a little? Yeah, uh, it's certainly not great. I mean, she starts off by saying nice things about him, right? Yeah. Before she goes to, yay, he's fucked up. That's good for me. It's interesting. So, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a reverse open-faced compliment sandwich. <laughs> yeah, because what's interesting is like I, I really, I can't exactly say like, that's really fucked up, but I'm like, that's uh odd way of looking at human beings. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's looking at his issue as uh, an advantage specifically for her. Right. Yes, exactly. And then she proceeds to drag Sveta. So I'm going to give you some space here. Who, who the fuck is this bitch? That's <laughs> going to talk about my Sveta like that, Matt. <laughs> Uh-huh. I'm so angry. I know. Um, okay. So, yes, let's <sighs> Yeah. It's it's um, it's not it's not nice. No, her description of Sveta are insanely cruel here. She calls her it, calls her that. Basically, she's looking at her in the exact way that Sveta is 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 afraid that people will look at her, right? She's she's treating her in that exact same way. Mm-hmm. So, it turns out that all those crystals, Matt, the only thing they were hiding is that Narwhal is kind of a jackass. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, uh, I I kind of I kind of agree. I mean, 
she she's she's off in ways that are surprising yeah. right i mean the, and the thing about the thing about her is is she says this stuff in the in the the rudest possible way um in her but mind she's not a, she's not 100 percent wrong right Mm. Um, she, she yeah. notes that Weld was into another cape. Mm-hmm. Um, she notes that 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 Weld uh, turned down that that cape. Noticed that Weld was into into her. Uh, approached him. She turned or he turned her down. Um, and then she reiterates what we know is true based on Weld's admission to Victoria all those chapters ago. He wants someone with a body. Uh, she says it in the most jackassy way possible, right? It's like he's really into humans and she's not human enough. Uh-huh. Which is just fuck you. But um, but it is true what she's saying about Weld. It is true what he wants. And also there's this moment where uh, she says if he'd asked Narwhal for advice, she would have told him she'd like slicing for him mm-hmm. more than she'd like this girl that he had his own healing and growing to do and it seemed to her that he was putting it on hold it may be better that he hadn't asked her like this could actually be true on a cer- certain level yeah. that um his dating with sveta is preventing him from working on his shit because her shit is a lot more prescient and like it, she's working through a lot of stuff and he is the type of guy who uh looks looks out for the people around him right so that could be a true statement that that's what he's doing and it could still be true that the best thing in the long term for both of them is that this relationship needs to end but don't call sveta it jackass yeah right i mean it's interesting because it's all in her mind right so yeah i think that she and that's another thing is like she's savvy enough that she wouldn't say this true true um but but it's just fascinating to see how kind of ruthless and like brutal she is in her thoughts about people yeah. and and really kind of like just cold and and utilitarian in the way she assesses all these things like yeah, the, the yeah. way she's ass- assessing people and their relationships and, and their their value. Um, I mean, th- and this continues just kind of seamlessly into this next bit where she strikes up a conversation with Foil, asking after Parian. And I mean, even here, like she clearly has an agenda going into this conversation. Yeah. Um, like, at, like at first she offers herself as, as a listening ear. And then she mentions that the wardens have had their eye on her as a recruit. And I mean, it, I, I feel like I'm being a little bit too hard on Narwhal actually, because like she is, she is serving as a listening ear. She's, she's letting, letting foil vent um, and letting foil think out loud as she kind of works her way up towards a decision and and foil, you know, for for her part, she's thinking like, I can't let this continue. I can't let March persist as a threat to my peace of mind and to the lives of my loved ones. And and Narwhal is actually just trying to be like, um, you know, don't don't go after March because she's really dangerous. Yeah, she just beat a lot of us and killed a bunch of people. Um, but ultimately, she fails to convince her. I think largely because she isn't quite able to tune into Foil's wavelength. Like it's yet again. Narwhal, I think here she actually has kind of the best intentions, but she she doesn't connect. She doesn't connect to use that word yeah. again. Doesn't I connect mean, she, to foil. She fumbles this. She fumbles the approach of this whole argument. Mm-hmm. You're, you're absolutely right. She does not connect to her because like her whole thing is like to 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 Narwhal. It's like if you choose not to go like if you like if it's like oh you're afraid of going home you're afraid of of having to see Parian again and that's not it that's not really what's going through foil's mind right now um right narwhal i I love the i love the part about like you're you're acting like i'm an alcoholic um because i took one 
I took one drink like because I was never an alcoholic before and I took one drink in six months. Um, and, and suddenly you think that just because I want to finish this, that I'm, I'm an alcoholic and it's like, it, it is, it is very kind of presumptuous on Narwhal's part, but again, she's not a hundred percent wrong either because foil is obviously like at, at this point where she's like really, really driven to finish this and put herself in danger to finish it. Yeah. Um, but but Narwhal is off on her because like it's it's more it's it's less um it's less I am addicted to the fight. Like one one thing we know about Foyle from before and that is confirmed here again is that she kind of wants to quit this. She doesn't want to do this anymore. The everyone says it's going to get better. You get used to it. It gets easier. It's not getting easier for her. It's not getting better. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And she wants to be done. She doesn't want to do this anymore. And but she can't do that yet she can't quit Mm -hmm. with march still out there and she knows it and she can't face she can't go back to her relationship she can't go back to her her normal life with this looming threat out there anymore Mm -hmm. and that is not that is you're you're absolutely right that is not what narwhal is is assuming here yeah and again just to maybe slightly backpedal on my being hard on on narwhal like she's she just she doesn't want foil to go get herself killed but she's just it's her it's her ineptness basically with with human things that makes her kind of fail to be persuasive and yeah and that's kind of the overall sentiment that i get from narwhal's point of view is that she's just not quite tuned into the to the human wavelength anymore yeah i think you're right and yeah like i don't i i'm not gonna sit here and say that she's a terrible terrible person i think the stuff that she thought about sveta was legitimately awful mm-hmm. um but I mean, I, I do think you're right that I think she has foils interest in mind here. And I, I think she also sees like the one thing she mentions is that like I didn't go home. I went out on another mission and another mission and another mission. And and now I'm alone because mm-hmm. of it. Um, I don't I don't want you to end up like I am. Um, but mm-hmm. that's not that's not really like that's projecting. Right. That's saying, oh, this is foil is going through the exact thing I went through and I can fix this. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite it. Mm-hmm. At least I maybe maybe I'm just projecting because I really don't want Foil and Perry and their relationship to end. I really really don't want it. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think. I, I mean, I think you know. I think it's uh, certain things are are word of God outside of the story, but I think we know in text that Narwhal is a second trigger, and I can't help but think that that means more than just like you know fun superpowers backstory stuff right here. Like this is a person who has gone through something so bad that their shard took an even deeper root in them and and some kind of trauma that affected them even worse than they originally were affected. Yeah. And um and this is being contrasted and and maybe even I mean I I can't help but see the connection to Dauntless now that I've seen it. Yeah. Um and and this idea that she thinks that they're all alone uh might be related to the fact that she's a second trigger. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, I like that. I like that line of thinking that the the more the the shard opens up, the less the uh, person there is in there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, overall, just want to point out that Narwhal does not really come off like a legend or like a chevalier or <laughs> or even like a dauntless. Once we're inside her head, no. uh, she seems a lot more motivated by negative emotions and a bit less on the, on the same wave as on the same wavelength as the person she's trying to mentor. Mentor. So, uh, you know, am I off base here? No, I think I think yeah, this conversation is kind of. Yeah. Proven out that you're you're yeah. not. Yeah. You're not. Um, and I think that the book wants you to think that. Yeah. Right. I, I think I don't think you s- s- set up a scene 
where she's referring to Sveta in terms like it and that mm-hmm. um, and w- with a character that you want people to be endeared to. You want you want to see her as a person that is not like we thought she was, that is different, um, that has some serious issues on her own. And maybe mentoring people when you're not really dealing with your shit is not the smartest thing to do. Yeah. yeah. So we switch to the next point of view, which seems to be swan song but uh this is a complete and utter fake out it's an amazing fake out it's so wonderful we're going to talk all about it when we get there yeah. but i love it so Antares and swan song have a wonderful conversation about the state of the team and about carol and we learned that the team was responsible for four deaths and victoria is is responsible for one of those at least one of at them. least one of those she's concerned that etna might be dead and the two of them agree that the best place to put her focus now is on Sveta. Yeah, and there's a whole lot to talk about in that one little paragraph there. Um, I, the first thing we need to talk about, I think, is this idea that Carol was hurt enough uh, that that she's heading to Earth Shin, uh, presumably to be healed by her daughter. Um, we still, interestingly enough, don't get a description of exactly how she's hurt. Uh-huh. Um, we know her face is fine. That's what Swan Song kindly tells her, that her face is doing good. Um, but uh, not, not not much else. Yeah, she's I mean, going to live. Her face is fine. But she's still going to Shin to get healed. Yeah. Weblo just gives us some like graphic violent imagery to kind of right. kind of smear over uh, the, the photograph of Carol in her mind so that we it's kind of a nonspecific horrifying injury. Which yeah. is kind of like what he did with Chicken Little, just makes us like, oh no, it's I I don't want to know. Yeah, and obviously our our protagonist uh, is having a difficult time with this. Mm-hmm. Um, the mother that she hurt with her power uh, is now going to the sister that caused that power to exist to get healed by it. Yeah. Um. I I. So we have to talk about this one part because for some reason I missed this on the first two times I read through this chapter and it's wonderful. Uh, in this exasperation and, and uncertainty, it says Antares turned her head skyward, hands up near her head as if she were making a plea to the heavens, except the heavens were largely occupied by the massive Titan that loomed in the upper end of what had been New Brockton Bay, straddling the portal there. So there's our arc title name thrown into the chapter matt she's making a plea to the heavens only they're not there no more because there's a dauntless yeah or maybe dauntless is is the heavens is the heavens he's he's representing them he's the he's like an angelic figure sitting astride the uh the portal it's it's yeah could be either one right yeah 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 so yeah so let's talk about the killing let's do it let's do it so Victoria killed somebody that yep. has happened. Um, it, it is presumably one of the faceless soldiers. She dropped that whole chunk of building on. Uh, but then we have all this part where she's unsure if, if it was Etna or not. Like mm-hmm. we talked about last week, how she noticed very specifically that Etna did not rejoin the battle. Um, and, and kind of maybe in the back of her mind was thinking about why that would be. And then we hear, see here that that's really true that, um, She's I I didn't I didn't hurt her that bad, but she still could have been seriously hurt and she could have been one of these. And and the thing about this is is Victoria is dealing with this, the immensity of this. And and she's talking to Swansong, who has a um who has a a very intimate uh a, like history with taking people's lives. Yeah. And and so what, what Swansong does here is brilliant because they basically 
start having a conversation about Etna's clothes. Mm-hmm. They basically go into the classic Victoria Swan song uh, style disagreement. Um, and, and, and what, what, uh, what Swan song is doing here is kind of distracting her away from these spiraling thoughts, right? She's pulling her away from this into like a, a, a conversation where they're just joking around about clothes, which is one of the connecting features between these two girls. Like this is one of the things that they kind of bonded bonded on is that they are very they have their own very specific sense of style and fashion. And that is something that is very important to both of them. And it is something they have in common. Um, and a lot of this part of this chapter and the chapter as a whole is connection. But specifically, like you pointed out last week, Matt, when you were being hopeful and I was being negative, the connection between Victoria and Swan Song is very, very, very important, and we're we're reestablishing that right here. Yeah, right. At, like th- there are some moments where I almost felt like Swan Song was being a little bit um, insensitive, but but ultimately, I feel like I feel like it 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 does it does kind of nudge Victoria out of her um, the slump that she's obviously in, kind of the the, the dwelling and the and the negativity that she's obviously in. Yeah. 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 I I don't think it's, I don't think it's being, I don't think it's trying to be dismissive of the, the severity of, of how Victoria feels about this. Mm -hmm. I think it's just trying to help her to get through it and not get, and not do her Victoria spiral thing. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, I mean, at at this point I'm willing to extend that, that level of, of nuance to swan song. I think previously in the story I would have just been like, Oh, she's just being needlessly harsh to, to be shocking, but, but now I, I feel like it's more like she's kind of understanding what's going on with Victoria. Yeah. And it's at this point, uh, in, in the chapter where if you're reading it for a third time, um, you might, you might be acutely aware that there has been no kind of internal monologuing happening. Mm. All the text is dialogue between these two characters and uh, physical description. It's of movement. There's been no thought process until this one part where, um, she says, we made an impact. The Harbingers counted the injured and the dead, 30 individuals bound for hospitals, 12 are dead, four of those are our fault. And we hear the unnamed point of view character say, our fault, not counting me. And we don't know who that is, right? Mm-hmm. We still, but, but the, the book kind of wants us to think we're in Swansong's head right now. So um, you're immediately like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're thrown off for a second and, and I think I think that's a good timing because it doesn't wait too much longer before it kind of tells us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Like, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> so I'll just, I'll just read this bit first. Um, I'm happier than I was a year ago. Swan Song said. So is Lookout. She's not with her parents anymore. So is Precipice, I think. And then Victoria asks Sveta and Swan Song says, work on that. Focus on that. So, well, we don't have to do our discussion question anymore. <laughs> yep. I think the book just answered which of the which of breakthrough is the worse off. I think um, you're right. And there's this wonderful moment where Swan Song says when, when pointing out that Sveta has welled at least and you're just like <laughs> and Victoria is too. She's like Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Un- uns- yeah. Unsmiling like yeah. Yeah. Right. You can, I could just imagine her exact tone and expression doing that like Yep. <laughs> yeah, but but again, I love this. This is this is Swan Song saying to Victoria, "Look, I know you. I know you're gonna you're gonna spiral about these these people you killed. Um, but 
they were dumb. <laughs> they like idiots get killed, right? That's like something she said, like do stupid things, get stupid results or something to mm-hmm. that effect. And, and so she's trying to focus her on the things that matter now, uh, yeah. which is not to say you shouldn't feel bad for having to take someone's life, but you shouldn't let that be all encompassing to where you do a Victoria spiral. So she's saying, look, focus on the things that matter. Sveta needs you. She's going to need you more. She's going to need you a lot here pretty soon because this weld stuff is going to spill over here pretty soon. So focus on that. Don't focus on the, the, the faces of the people you killed. Don't focus on putting Etna's face on the body of someone you think you killed. You can't, you can't live there. Don't focus on your mom Mm -hmm. hanging out with your sister. Focus on the things you can change. Focus Mm -hmm. on the things you can do. Focus on your friend. Yeah. 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 Damn, I love Ashley. She's great. I love her. Well, I love one Ashley. Yeah, true. <laughs> because now, um, Damsel, the true point of view of this chap of this section, approaches and tells Swan Song that she's leaving. And Swan Song sort of half heartedly tries to tell her to stay or ask her to stay. Yeah. And, and uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about this, uh, you know, forever. Because. Yeah so the choice was made here to do this from damsel's point of view and this does a whole lot of things but not only was the choice made to make this from damsel's point of view but the choice was made to hide that fact until this moment which is the moment we declare we are actually in damsel's head and and i think the reason we did that is because it it allows us to really accentuate damsel's exclusion here like we we talk about connections again 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 She's not connected to any of these people. And so she's not involved in this conversation. She's not in the circle. She's not in the group. She's an outside observer. She's standing off to the side, listening to this stuff happen. And she's not a part of it. And, and, and masking that it's from her point of view really accentuates that because we weren't paying attention to her either because we didn't even think this was her. Like, right. We're not even thinking about her because we think this is Swansong again. We, the reader are paying attention to damsel just as much as any of their characters are. And that is none. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she's, she's outside of the circle of our concern. Right. She's right. from the outside looking in and not being paid attention to just like, she's kind of always been afraid of like be, being cast away yeah. from the fire. Like she was back in her interludes. Exactly. And, and, and with all her posturing, we know better. We know that she actually does care. And the text even kind of reminds us of that again, that, that one, that one bit that we talked about a little earlier, our fault, not counting me. She's hurt that she's not considered in that. She's hurt that she's not considered part of the group that the four killed did not include the ones that she herself. Did. Right. Even though they were in, and you can understand why she phrased it that way. Cause it's like that she means breakthrough, but damsel's like, Hey, we were all part of the same group right. out there. Right. Um, and and the uh, you know this this concept is is made made into like a visual metaphor here at the very end of this section, where Damsel's becoming increasingly agitated, and Narwhal steps in um, with a force field, um, kind of separating Damsel and and Victoria and Swansong on the other side. Yeah, the material like like a crudely cut piece of crystal or thick glass with the edges chipped to a razor edge, bearing a rainbow sheen. She stared into it and through it, and the reflection was distorted. If it wasn't for the fact that the face she saw was standing alone, she could have thought that she were looking through at her wretched sister. She scoffed and turned her back on the scene. Ugh, it's uh, I love this so much. Uh, I was so happy when I read this. It, it's it's a it's a perfect visual encapsulation of everything, right? Uh, this this barrier between her and her sister. 
um, and she's alone. Like I lo- even even how the text accentuates this: a force field appeared between damsel and the pair. Right? Yeah. We've we've automatically Victoria and Swan Song are a pair. Mm-hmm. Damsel is herself, and 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 everything in that this this whole. Uh, paragraph really accentuates that fact with with this beautiful imagery the 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 reference to the pair um it's kind of tragic in a way right because like you see that damsel like you through ashley you see that there could be a better way that there could be a way that you're you're happier and healthier and not alone again um ashley made choices that that have led her to the people she's friends with and and the, the the connection she's had and the fact that she is a pair the fact that she is not alone on the one side of that of that force field uh damsel chose not to yeah and and it's it's so sad and and we talked last week about how you were very positive about about swan song you were pretty convinced that because of her relationship with people, because of her relationships with Kenzie and with Victoria, that she doesn't care about the same things anymore. And I was, I was wanting you to be right, but I was in the back of my mind, I was a little worried. And I think what this is doing is confirming that you are absolutely right. That, that what they want and what, and, and, and they're just totally different people now. Yeah. Um, which is not to say that Ashley Swansong does not have issues anymore. She, she absolutely will be struggling with these things for the rest of her life, probably, but she has found strength in her community, in her team, in her group. She has found a a spot at that fire Mm -hmm. and damsel through her choices, uh, is kicked out once again. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that it's a recurring theme in the story that, that the, that it's, it's almost exclusively the characters who, repeatedly double down on their bullshit yeah who end up getting the bad outcomes like like if they're willing to accept a hand that is offered to them usually like in this story that results in a kind of slow and painful upward spiral where eventually they look back over the course of their progress in the story or we look back over the course of their progress in the story and say wow they really come a long way and it all stemmed from that one instance of them kind of reaching out for help, reaching for some kind of connection with someone, basically just asking for a second chance. Yeah. And the characters like, I guess, Cradle and 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 Damsel, I could probably think of some others, are, are the ones who are just love like... Love lost in kind of a way, Love too. lost, in a, in a, yeah, certainly, um, are the ones who double down on it consistently and, until it's essentially too late. And it's not. It, it's only too late because they've become the kind of person who would now just never reach out for help. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's very true because even in this moment, it's not too late for damsel. Yeah. Um, she just chooses to make it so. Right. Exactly. So we, we end off with damsel and we move on to our final point of view of this chapter, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, Tori, Tori and March are having their sexy time interrupted by the arrival of foil. Um, don't know how much time has passed, but I, I like that we, I, I like that. I don't know. I, I felt like, um, I felt like when foil was going to go off to kill March, I was like, well, I guess that's, that's going to be next arc. We're going to have the <laughs> right. whole foil goes after March. It's like, nope, she's right here now already outside. And, uh, anyway, uh, March's power tells her that foil and then the dog are coming and she anticipates that her reinforcements will be arriving shortly to help deal with her. Did you, I was kind of off 
put by the fact that like they're just chilling in bed after doing it. Um, because the last time we saw her, she just killed a character we loved and just unleashed this horrible thing and has ch- completely changed the world now. And then like we see her again and she's just, just chilling in the bed and it's just like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, um, it, it basically, it's, it's all just there to make you kind of like, um, hate this person. I mean, I, yep. I, I, I already hate her. And now I see she's just like enjoying, uh, a, a, a lazy, a lazy, sexy morning with, with her, her girlfriend. And you're just like, you don't deserve anything good, but uh, <laughs> right. yeah, no, I, I think you're right there. Yeah. And I really like that we're in Tori's point of view here as well. Um, because yeah. Tori is someone that sees a side of March that, uh, none of us are interested in seeing because <laughs> we hate her. Um, yeah. and I think that is accentuated by the fact that Tori still calls her May. Right. Yeah. Um, once I went back to 12.z and kind of just perused through it to see and, and really once once May adopts the March persona, she really doesn't in her interlude refer to herself as May anymore. Mm-hmm. She is March. But we have Tori, this person here who who still does, who still sees a difference between May, the person and March, uh, the the cape and. Um, I, I think that's, that's really important because like it's just it's just an interesting perspective on this character that uh, we all hate so much. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I want to say it humanizes her a little bit, but I don't know if it really does, actually. It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. I think I think what it does is instead of humanizing her, it shows conclusively that the human side of her does not exist <laughs> because because the one person who still sees the human side of her is the one person that she like vehemently rejects uh-huh. at the end of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, if anything, you, you actually do care a bit about Tori. Like she, I mean, yeah, not cause you like her necessarily, but she's, no. she's like a person at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Tori dresses March for battle, uh, still bitter that March is heading off for what she suspects is a far more meaningful encounter than she could ever have with March. Tori kind of in a in a kind of a fit of of irritation and frustration demands that March take this fight seriously and that she kill Foil, not just mess with her, or Tori will walk away. Yeah. I love this kind of reflection of the the decisions the two of them are making, right? Foil is sitting here wrestling with this idea that I can't return to the woman I love until March is gone. I have to finish this. The woman that loves March um, saying you have to kill this person or I'm leaving. Like it's an interesting, mm-hmm. interesting little, little flip. Both of them, both of them have, have women waiting for them. Um, and, and they need this conflict with each other done mm-hmm. one way or another. Yeah. It's very, very epic, isn't it? Yeah. So cool. So, uh, foil. Uh, so yeah, March goes outside, confronts foil. Um, the two begin dueling, and spitting back and forth at each other. And I don't mind saying that my heart was absolutely hammering for this whole fight. Yeah. Uh, they go back and forth. Their, their shared power of timing and angles keeping them somewhat like at, at a stalemate. They both have such precision that they can just block like point-to-point strikes with their swords. Um, and then it, eventually Foil... I, I think what happens is Foil sees Tori, looks like she's going to make a move, and so she preemptively nails her hand to the wall with the with one of her nails yeah yeah that was my read on it too for sure 
I like like once again, I have to talk about the, the point of view decision here, Matt, because I like that we're seeing this battle from the point of view of someone who's not participating in it, from someone who's removed, mm-hmm. because this is like this is their thing, right? Like this is I, I think it would feel weird to be in the point of view of one of them while they're fighting, because this is this is it, it, it makes it very clear when you're in the when you're someone removed from it, that this is between them. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like, that's your thing. You're standing over there. You're doing it. Um, that's that. I, I like it. Yeah. They, they even go out of the frame at one point, like, yeah. like, like out of sight. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So eventually, uh, while they're fighting, March notices something is off that her reinforcements aren't arriving when she expected uh, it's interesting what is obvious on a reread and what is absolutely perplexing on the on the on the first read through. <laughs> right, right. Um, but like you, you you realize the things that March is noticing, which is that her reinforcements are here, and she decides that this is because of interference from Imp. Yeah, I really like this scene though because like she does this cool typical March move where she like flicks her sword out uh-huh. and is is like, well, we might be even matched now, but just you wait, flick sword out. And then nothing happens because uh-huh. she was expecting her guys to start arriving. And then that's when she's like, oh, you did something. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Uh, her time, your timing's all off in this in this chapter. That's kind of what makes it cool. And what's the opposite of foreboding? It's like no, nothing's quite working out for her the way it was working out in 12.Z. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's perfect. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. Of, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. I can't come. I can't. It. it it is it is justice finally being done. Yeah, this this creeping sense of wait a minute, this yeah. this, this might not go terribly. Uh, yeah. So March finally does tell Foil at this point, and consequently Tori uh, about the nature of Shard Heaven, uh, at least as far as she understands it. Yeah, that, she's totally wrong now, but yeah, yeah. And Foil is duly horrified and. She reacts thinking that she's going to have to destroy March's very being to keep this from coming to pass. Um, and T- Tori is also kind of crushed because she realizes the implications of this. Yeah, the, the thing that she she feared this entire time, which is that uh, these people were always more important to March than she was, is basically shown right in front of her. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and then before Tori can interfere again, her throat is mysteriously slashed in a pretty horrifying moment that we can't help but cheer for considering the stakes. Yeah, we see an arm. She sees an arm and we're like, an arm? Yeah, right. <laughs> who has who yeah. the hairy man arm? I've never, it's imp. I've never fist pumped at someone being, um, someone's throat being cut uh, uh, yeah. before, before today. It is, I mean, it is kind of tragic. Like in her moment of, of realization. Yeah. Um, that the person that she loves doesn't actually care about her in the same way. It definitely that. is tragic, but like, I was just so like, Oh my God, I'm so nervous about this fight, you know? Yeah. 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 For sure. Like, I, I'm not saying like, Oh, boom, bummer. Tori's yeah. dead. But I'm just saying like, Oh <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and Tor- the response, Tori was the response. Dang it. That's such a, such and a perfect March response. March is I just mean, so like blasé about everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then uh, the next thing that happens is because Tori was able to warn March about Imp, Imp, uh, uh, sorry, uh, March stabs Imp and, and Foil through the hearts, killing them both unceremoniously uh, mm-hmm. and then says, uh, come on, Tori, let's get you look after, March said, as, they're, as the pair fell to the ground behind her. I suppose I'm going to have to kill their friends because they'll be out for revenge. And there it is. Imp is dead. Foil is dead. 
And for the third time, March turns her back to people as they die. Like it's some kind of three beat or something. But Matt, isn't the third beat in a three beat usually like a subversion? And that's all we have for this week's chapters. Unfortunately, this episode took so long that we're going to have, we're not going to have any time to uh, cover our usual discussion question spot or go over March Madness brackets. But you can check out uh, all those at doofmedia.com slash March Madness. We'll see you next week as we begin Arc 13 Black. Scroll down the script, Matt. Oh my goodness, I wrote more script. (laughs) Way to sell it. Way to sell it, buddy. (laughs) So Tori uh, briefly comes back to her senses and sees that the two women have stood up again. March realizes that another player is involved, someone who distorted the space of the battlefield, resulting in the delay of her reinforcements. It can't be. It can't be. From a distant vista, Vista manipulates the length of March's rapier, rendering it almost inert as a weapon, giving Foyle the chance to stab her through the heart. And Foyle takes the chance and then spits on the body of her nemesis. Spitting on her. Wow. Deserves it. Sure, I'm not going to say no, but wow. Can we go get my arm back? Yeah, let's. And let's get me a new left hand while we're at it. Where are they going to get a new left I, hand? Yeah, I, I kind of imagine like <laughs> like them going on like a, a rampage and like forcing some forcing the the gray twin to steal someone's hand or something. Like I, I don't know, my mind went weird places with this. But anyway, the pair wave to someone distant and they leave Tori to bleed out, thinking and and as she bleeds out, she's thinking about how she she'll be with Bianca and the others soon. Yeah, sorry, Tori, bummer. Yeah, so I mean. Vista's not dead, Matt. Um, this was incredible. Uh-huh. Um, we have to talk about the the moment where March said, "If she were smart, she'd uh, you know stay from a distance and set a trap, and then I, there'd be no way I could get out of it." But she's a stupid teenager that uses her power like, oh, like yeah. an adolescent, right? Right, right. Um, she she doesn't focus enough on the quiet parts of her power. She she right. wants everything to. She she yeah. She thinks the most impressive part is when she's been using her power for a while, not the weird stuff that happens while she's using it. And I mean, clearly she's just wrong. Like, and it's 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 her undoing. She's wrong. Yep. She she misses what Vista actually does when they're fighting, and turns her back on her because that's the kind of arrogant person she is. Doesn't yeah. realize what's happened. Um, and yeah, it all, it all comes together perfectly. I mean, yeah, I don't know. We don't, there's so much like foreshadowing and careful, like careful decisions in terms of how things are shown and how things are described that I'm not going to lie. I didn't see any of other than having like a feeling of, of just like the way I parse this, I would not be surprised if Vista were still alive, but that doesn't that doesn't sum up to, yeah, this is totally alive and the reasons are X, yeah. Y, and Z. I mean, I thought they were just the, the ramblings of a desperate man <laughs> um, trying to deal with the death of a character they liked. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like this, it's really cool. And I mean, I feel like it's earned because a lot of like I have trouble in 
narrative sometimes when like death is cheated, like when someone dies and, and they dies for a certain effect. And then the, the story kind of undoes that um, walking dead is a show I used to watch and ditched because I, they did that all the time. And I, I can't stand it. Yeah. Um, but I think this is earned in a very, very specific way because the reason why this happened is, is because of a specific failure within March, um, within, with overconfidence in her abilities, lack of understanding of other people, um, show offiness, all this stuff leads to her undoing, um, in, in a wonderfully earned way. And I think that's why this works for me. I I think it's, it's, it's inventive. I love the way the, I just love the way the structure of it, right? The, 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 the fake out, like I bought into it. I really did. I thought, characters were dead there there we go march is gonna win again my first thought was oh everyone's gonna be so pissed about this um <laughs> and then and then you know you scroll down like vista literally warped the page we're reading um right and so you have to scroll down a bit more to see the next text it's it's a wonderful like way to use the story structure to to do something um and people were talking about like how you couldn't like do this in other mediums. And I don't think that's, I think you could do this with pages in a book just fine. Yeah. You could um, maybe put it at the end of a chapter and then you turn the page and it's clearly more chapter or something yeah, like that. But, yeah. So I, uh, went about 20 minutes thinking that imp and, uh, foil were dead. <laughs> um, how, how are you doing? Were well, you doing okay? I was like, I, I was a little, I was definitely like upset and I was like, man, the story is just going in such a dark direction. Like, I feel like we're entering some kind of spiral of, of just like, if, 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 if imp and foil are going to die in this situation, that's just an indicator that like everything is about to just absolutely escalate. And, and all of the dying at the end of the last chapter was just like a, a little foretaste of, of what's to come. And yeah. And, and I was also like, I was also just kind of upset about those specific deaths. Cause I was like, that's just such a shitty way for imp to go out. That's just really like, ah, and then, uh, and then, and then, and then, uh, I was, I told my brother that I finished and he's like, Oh yeah. And then he he said something and I was like, that, what, what is that? What, what are you talking about? And he's, whatever he said, it wasn't spoilery enough where I was spoiled, but I was like, what, what the hell are you talking about? And then, and then I, he was like, oh, go finish the chapter. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's fun because basically everyone had a different experience of the chapter because some people, you probably went like 12 seconds. Yeah. Well, like, like, I think like five people tweeted at me, <laughs> Scott scroll down like immediately. So yeah, right. um, there really was never, there was probably like a five second window uh-huh. where I believe that this was the end of the chapter. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't think that matters. I think I enjoyed it just as much had I caught it myself. Yeah. Um, it's fun. It's a fun way of doing things. It, it matches. I mean, the whole thing was the battle between space and time and space one. Literally, you can see it on the page. Look at that space. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I mean, I think the whole idea of, of the, the, the reason why March was so dominant in, in the, in the first chapter are, are not present in this chapter. Like she doesn't have her power yeah. battery. And now instead of, instead of setting the terms of an ambush, she's the one being ambushed by, by people who she's not prepared to fight. And, yep. and, and so the tables are turned and it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, if anything, it, it underlines that, yeah, the first chapter actually made sense because this one makes sense too. 
Yeah. Um, also, we see her arms hurt. So <laughs> her arms hurt. Right there, you go, people. Yeah. So her arm got shot. So March came in like a lion, and now she's going out like a lamb. Is what everyone else has already pointed out. <laughs> um, and and the last comment, of course, is that March is in shard heaven now. Sure. Okay. Her, her version of it. Yeah. Shard Heaven now. Shard Heaven now. That wraps up the chapters. That is the the real end of the chapters. The real end of the chapters for this week, unless there was more and that, that we missed somehow. No, I scrolled all the way down. It's just a bunch <laughs> of comments. Okay. So the name game for this week, Addison. What does that mean, Scott? Addison means son of Adam, um, which is a, a very interesting thing considering that Dauntless debatably just turned into a god. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, we'll see We'll see what comes of that. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's definitely intentional. Yeah. So the discussion question for this week, uh, sorry, for last week, for last week was uh, Breakthrough is in bad shape. Who is currently in the worst place? Um, yeah, so we have to admit that the, the text kind of uh, answered this question for us. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I think, Matt, this was the closest we've ever gotten to a consensus uh-huh. on an answer anyway. Uh, most people said Sveta. Like the book did, uh-huh. so makes sense. Um, also, a lot of people cheated, Matt. Uh-huh. A bunch of cheaters just picked all of them, <laughs> or just didn't pick any of them and just talked about all of them. A bunch of cheaters. Yeah, we liked we liked your insightful comments a lot, but you're cheaters. Yeah, that's not acceptable. <laughs> Minus five points from yep. from Gryffindor. Uh, Sarah Penguin says Sveta. She is possibly the most empathetic person on, on the team. She's the team mom, and she had to watch Cradle take apart the people she cares about. If she still had her body, she would have most likely been holding Kenzie the same way she held Rain when he got carved up. Um, and they go on to say she lost her body, her suit made her feel more human, and let her feel like she could fit in without being K-53-ish. When Cradle took her suit, he essentially took her humanity away. It left her more isolated as she can't get near the others. So while the team are all supporting each other, she is alone with the occasional Victoria visits. Yeah. I mean, look, I I, I think we should say at the top that I agree that Sveta is <laughs> the worst off. So I'm going to agree with every one of these people that say Sveta for sure. Yeah, I mean, Sveta is the one breakthrough character we don't have the interlude yet from. So, um, yeah. That was some people's answer too, who just did some meta analysis. Uh, but Beard of Valor actually lists someone else. They say Chris is in the worst place because he's achieved control in a way that sort of makes him his own enabler. He's unsure of what who he want who he is and who he wants to be, but he views his humanity and, and this definition of humanity is him in human form as something to be cast off. But he likes Rain and Byron. He tried to rain in Kenzie's worst impulses. He likes being a monster, but he likes being part of the world and the society he castigates. Um, so yeah, basically Chris is a very complicated character who might just be falling into his own instincts. But I mean, you'd have to consider Chris part of breakthrough still. And I don't do that. Oh, he's definitely part of breakthrough. Nah, it's gonna, nah. it's gonna re- he's a traitor. It's going to come back. It's going to be Dead great. To me. Dead it's to me. Be, I mean, narratively though, he's totally going to well, come back. Of course yeah. he is. <laughs> Farm Fresh Hornets 
says Sveta. I have to say Sveta. Um, everyone else got some sort of definitive victory in this arc. Maybe not Ashley, but she's in a pretty okay place emotionally. Every success Sveta earned was poisoned by the fact that she did it in tentacle mode, a state where she can't let her guard down or be satisfied with herself, even for a moment, without a reminder of her shape and its horrible potential consequences. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, I, the, the thing that I liked, um, I liked what a lot of people said had to do with the fact that, like, well, everyone had some successes throughout this arc. Her successes, just by the nature of them, also kind of were failures, right? Yeah. Yeah, she can't She can't feel like she's been successful. Yeah. 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 Uh, Lost Man 138 lists them from, from the worst off to the most okay, which is almost cheating, but not quite cheating. Uh, and they, uh, they list Sveta as the worst off, Victoria as second, Rain as third, Ashley as fourth, Tristan and Byron as fifth, and Kenzie as the best off right now. Um, this is probably before the, this week's chapters came out, but, um, I would have probably put them in about the same order. I think I would have put Ashley a little more towards Warsaw because I was being a negative guy who was doubting what you were saying. Yeah, interesting. I uh, they they list Rain's like anger issues, and I'm I'm thinking that seem I I feel like that's going to be transitory though. So yeah, yeah, maybe like at this exact minute he's not doing well, but I feel like he's going to probably kind of bounce back from that just because the tokens are going to expire or whatever. However that works. Yeah. Exe. JPEG uh, says none of them are an exceptionally uh, personally bad place but then ends up saying Sveta says now all these things are bad for them in various ways but most aren't really bad for them in a personal way uh, the ones that I think of uh, apply to Victoria dipping back into more brutal tactics and intentionally hurting Carol and Sveta's suit getting destroyed and her deciding to finally use lethal force again yeah, so they, they kind of settle on Sveta. Although I think it's interesting that they actually list Victoria as their... So yeah, both Lost Man and EXE JPEG Windows Movie V um, put Victoria in their number two slot, basically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Scandiaca Blessing says all of them, but they choose to focus on Victoria as well, saying, I am very worried about Victoria, who I'm pretty sure hasn't slept a full eight hours since the Fallen Raid. It's probably true mm-hmm. uh, is known not to eat properly in times of strife and has been running a combat emotional gauntlet akin to s- sticking one's own knuckles against an active belt sander for the last several arcs. How? Uh, plus the last of the Brockton Bay-, Bay wards, who was her friend once upon a time dies. Well, not anymore with nothing you can do to help her. Her team is multi dismembered. Oh, and to add a metric shit brick of guilt from telling her mother to fuck off immediately before her her secret invisible death blender took a whack out of, out of said mom yeah that's something i i hadn't like actually put together this idea that like immediately after like her triumphantly saying fuck off mom uh she beats her accidentally right yeah that's the last thing she said to her you're right yeah the last thing they say is much like Taylor was our lady of perpetual escalation. It seems like Victoria is our lady of perpetual exasperation. I love it. <laughs> Which I liked stuck in Reddit factory, uh, says Victoria because she's, uh, because she's the pr- protagonist just <laughs> <laughs> judging by protagonists everywhere. And while the ones in particular, she hasn't hit her lowest point and won't until last possible moment. So while the others have it rough, at least they have the chance that, uh, that this is their worst. She's going to be a long way down from here. Um, thanks. That's great. I really wanted I to feel think about great. that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Antichrist also says Sveta uh, saying this. I thought it was an interesting way to describe it. Every pil- pillar holding her up has been knocked down one after another. And there are only two left, Victoria and Weld. Weld is looking for a gentle way to dump her and just went through some shit himself. Victoria just wretched her own mother and made a lot of moral compromises. She might be too distracted to give Sveta the support she needs, leaving Sveta with precious little. It's true. It's true. Yeah, this is that's a good point. And again, again, we have to say that this was before these chapters were out. Right. So um, you can't tell these people, no, you're wrong because of something that happened in 12 X. Um, I'm feeling a lot better, more. I'm feeling a lot better about Victoria after the latest chapter than I was when we asked this question. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. Giorgio Swaldanison uh, uses a little meta analysis to come up with their answer and says, uh, Sveta is the only main character without an interlude. All the others hit rock bottom. We had their interludes and then they picked themselves up and got back on the path to recovery. Sveta has been conspicuously out of focus for a large chunk of the story It'd be weird if after so much time building up her issues and giving her more and more focus these last few arcs, someone stole the suffering spotlight from her. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that meta reasoning, too. I think uh, if anything, I've, I've, I've repeatedly predicted that we would be getting a Sveta arc. And it's, if anything, only more foreboding that we that we basically put it off and we didn't get a breakthrough interlude this arc. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's true. So. Oh boy. <laughs> Raul Ritter, uh has a very number man esque rating system to this whole thing uh, from one to 13. And, and using this rating system, they conclude as follows. Uh, Victoria is the worst off if her mom is dead, which she isn't, or Ashley, if she's coping with the insubordination from Slashley, the way I'm expecting, which turns out she's not. Um, but Sveta is about to be the worst <laughs> off. And this is judging on the, the upcoming, uh, breakup of course yes i enjoy the boolean logic of, of this answer yes Peter enigma says byron and tristan are fucked up but once they're fixed tristan submitted to byron completely and byron rewarded that kenzie managed to be instrumental in saving the day ashley was injured but will get better rain managed to rid himself of his problem victoria is literally never doing well <laughs> so this is nothing new <laughs> <laughs> But Sveta just won because of her monstrous form and the same monstrous form that is about to make her boyfriend dump her. So she's under the illusion of, of doing well uh, and it'll be all the more painful when everything collapses. Yes. Yeah. Ouch. 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 Uh, Martian Man Eater also says Sveta, everyone else had their horrifying, oh no, my body parts moments or oh no, the trolley problem conundrum or oh no, I just squashed my mom like a bl- bug dilemma. But Sveta lost her body. She lost her body. Everyone else got their bodies back after the end of this this arc, except for Sveta. Ooh, yeah. Man, that's true. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. And the thing is, I think other people might not see it that like quite that way either, but for her, that is really what it is. That sucks. Yeah. Sergeant Buttersticks says, Victoria, uh, number one, hurting Carol with the wretch was pretty much the worst case scenario trauma-wise. It attacked a lack of of bodily control and control in general. It was a failure of communication, the backbone of a lot of what Victoria is trying to build. It's going to drive an even larger wedge between Victoria and her family, especially because I don't trust Carol to react in the best way. (laughs) After this, as mentioned in, in the podcast, she reverted. She more or less stopped weighing things in her mind. I don't trust this to be a victory. The objectives might have been completed, but at a heavy cost, maybe a step 
or two back therapy wise. And then bullet point number two, injuring slash killing. It's, it's kind of odd to say, but I hope that possibly killing and definitely injuring and maiming people is going to weigh on Victoria. To me, the blasé manner in which she inflicted injury reminded me of Taylor. I can see these, uh, sorry, I can see this going where Victoria just refuses to look back at what she's done, just throwing the label justified on it and moving on. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about 12.x is because we were not in Victoria's headspace, we don't actually know like she's she's being vocal to swan song about how she's feeling about this stuff. And it is clear that it is weighing on her, but we don't know the level at which it's weighing on her until we really get into her head. Yeah, um, it's true. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly concerned for her as well. Um, 12.x made me feel a little bit better, but she could be spiraling in her head and, and damsel was just unable to pick it up. So we, the text gave no mention of it. Right. Yeah, it's true. We'll just have to see how she's doing. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, some general comments, not specifically relating to the question. One from Watson, they say, so the final confrontation between protagonist group and antagonist group took place in a cityscape. Uh, twisted into inception-like scenery by shaker power and ended when said shaker power was sorry when said shaker was torn apart do you guys have any idea why wild bro wrote 12.9 uh to so clearly mirror 12. all uh yeah i I included this because i found this interesting um i don't know if i have like a super satisfying answer for it other than uh wild bro likes to rhyme a lot in his stories Mm -hmm. that similar setups but twisted in a different way um i don't even know if this was an intentional rhyming here but uh that's yeah that's my thought yeah i think he's playing a lot with this with these with these images right now um yeah and yeah yeah but it's cool that it's it's really cool that you picked up on that um and that's that's a fun thing that yeah you can really dive into and and intentional or no like explore yeah, I feel like I don't have enough time to really give this answer. Um, it's due right now, but yeah, that's a fun comparison. Yeah. So the new uh, discussion question for this coming week is, uh, well, it's not one. <laughs> We've just completed a major movement of the story, so we're going to turn things around a bit here. Instead of a- us asking you a question, we're going to do a mini mailbag and discuss some of your questions. So get asking, submit your questions in the thread, um, and we'll... Or, uh, or email. Or email, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and please, we're doing ward-only questions, so keep it to the story, Yeah, uh, please. All right, so Sky, let's do a little bit of uh, March Madness results. All right, let's do it. The Elite Eight is over. We have some winners and some losers. Um, Matt. Yep. It was a rough. It was a rough day for people not number one seeds in their brackets. None of these matches were close. Wow! So let's jump into the first one. The first of the elite eight was Skitter versus Clockblocker. Um, some of the comments here uh, we have since that says, "I love them both. I want them both to win, but I know the Taylor has the best chance chances, so I have to vote for my boy Dennis." Um, Miko says, "There's a reason he has spiders in his nightmares, Taylor, all the way." Uh, we got some more time snatch references here. Um, and Todd says, I'd rather have a beer with Cloxy. I mean, the interesting thing about this is, again, it seems like most of the comments were for people that voted for Clockblocker. Um, but the results of the poll don't bear that out because Taylor won 81 to 19 percent. It's devastating. That's, yeah, it's pretty crushing. Sorry. Taylor advances to the final four. Sorry, yep. Dennis. 
Next up, we have Tattletale versus Defiant. What, did, what what was your guess here? I'm curious. I'm wondering. I mean, I I, I think of Tattletale as being very popular, so I, I would have guessed um in, in her favor. I think. Um, I think didn't we both vote for Defiant? Actually, we did. Yeah, we did. but no, Tattletale takes it with about sixty seven percent of the vote. Well, I think we're gonna have some people mad at us because uh, Fairlax says if you vote for Colin over Lisa, I don't know what to say. You are literally the worst. <laughs> um, Sorry. Chekhov's fire axe said Colin's character arc was ultimately much more satisfying to me than Lisa's. Oh, who am I kidding? I'm just being stubborn um, and trying to avenge the best girl, Rachel. <laughs> um, okay. All right. So, yep. So Gimel bracket, we had dragon versus regent. I must say that I'm very angry at all of you. <laughs> King Bob says Alec forever. Iron says the only good thing about Dragon losing is that there's going to be no chance she'll have to have another awful tragic fight against Defiant. So they voted for Alec as well. Uh, Enamored said this was very hard for them and they ended up choosing Dragon purely because of the cafeteria scene. Okay. All right. I, I can accept. I can accept that Dragon had her moments. Fine. Yeah. Dragon takes it with about 77%. Yep. And the final bracket we have Imp. Best girl versus Panacea. Worst uh, girl. Pa yeah, Panacea, who has struggled to win every single one of her victories in the bracket so far. Um, <laughs> and the comments, uh, just give, give us the results and then I'll show you the comments. 71% uh, uh, Imp takes it. <laughs> so we have Clax in the comments that says, <laughs> what the fuck, Imp all the way. <laughs> Um, we do have on the other side of things, Rizmon say, Aisha's great, but nobody breaks my heart like Amy and then repairs it with her powers while having a mental breakdown. So it becomes a mute, horrifying mutant heart, <laughs> except Kenzie. Kenzie destroys my heart in a similar, if less mutiny manner. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, Kachorchu says, I just listened to We've Got Worm episodes for arc 12 and 13. And if it wasn't for just reliving Amy's pivotal moments, there's no way I'd have voted against Aisha. But, uh, yeah, as you said, um, panacea is destroyed and amp takes it yeah i was noticing i was noticing the other day that my attitude toward these characters really shifts based on kind of almost like my mood or like <laughs> how i'm thinking about the story because like some i mean that's true like panacea is a great character it's just i i think i can i can love imp from more from a wider variety of mind states so yeah yeah so basically the final four are three undersiders and dragon yeah uh, not terribly surprising i don't think uh, these are all our number one seeds in the final four but for the first time the number one seeds have to fight each other so it's going to be very interesting i i am i'm fairly confident in how one of these matches is going to turn out i am not as confident in how the other is going to turn out yeah this is incredibly hard this is just so hard so first up we have skitter versus dragon who do you got matt I think I'm gonna go with Skitter. I, I love I love Taylor as a character. I think she's an incredibly good protagonist. Um, just endlessly rewarding to think about. You could almost do like an entire deep reading sort of like podcast analysis on her on her character arc mm -hmm. if you were inclined to. You could probably do that. And uh, and Dragon probably be wrong though. Well, you'd be mean to her. I think. Yeah, you'd probably be overly mean to her. That's true. But I mean, Dragon's a great character, but I'm just like, I, I just have to go with Taylor. 
I like Dragon. Um, I think the most the most interesting part of Dragon to me is how she interacts with and and brings about change in Defiant, mm-hmm. um, which is not anything against Dragon. I think she's great, but I, I find Defiant the more interesting of those two characters, and, and her interest to me is mostly in relation to him. Uh, so this was not a difficult decision for me at all. Okay. All right, number two. Tattletail versus Imp. What do you? I'm gonna make you go first on this one because this this one's impossible. Tattletail versus Imp. I don't know. Part of me wants to be a spoiler because Tattletail, I think, is the favorite here. Um, maybe I'm. I'm really not sure. Um, I think I'm gonna go for Imp. Okay. I, I, I really. So, I, I kind of made up my. Go ahead. What was your reasoning? I just. I. I just find Imp's arc like. I like Tattletail as a character. She's a really complex character, but she's not done yet. We don't have a clear, like, I don't have a clear, I can't look at her arc in Worm and say, ah, yes, that was nice. That was satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I can absolutely a hundred percent do that with Imp. Um, and we don't even know. I mean, both are still characters in, in Ward and are, are changing characters in the story, but still, I still don't have a clear map in my head of, of where Tattletail is going to end up. And it feels like to conclude on these characters, I need, I need that. And so I just, I'm going with him. You know, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm breaking a unwritten rule of, of this, of this March's madness thing, because I had kind of made up my mind for, for Tattletail before you said that, um, under my, under my rule that basically, um, I feel like worm wouldn't be worm without Tattletail. But, True. but then you kind of put that you kind of put it that way. And I'm like, well, I also think that Worm wouldn't quite be Worm without Imp because she brings some some comic relief, which is much needed in some cases and also quite a lot of heart in a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, both these characters are are ones that have kind of pledged themselves to to carry forth Taylor's legacy, which yeah. I find delightful. Um but I think Imp is doing it in a much more hands-on way and Tattletail's doing it in a very uh, Tattletail way. Yeah. Imp's, Imp's method is much more help, uh, much more uh, healthy and, and just like cutting people's throats who, who need it and not, not, not ruining their lives with, with blackmail and such. Yeah. I think I'm going to go with Imp. <laughs> wait, wait. What? <laughs> and, Imp's method is much more helpful by just like slicing some necks. That's all. That's all. That's March Madness, y'all. <laughs> can't wait to read I, i'm already glancing at some of the comments and they're pretty funny um for for this for this coming vote uh, but we're gonna have to read those next week so that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward you guys are all part of this show so feel free to provide us with advice questions or thoughts on this week's reading you can reach out to, out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at March Vista's Alive Dinner Mail. <laughs> if you're not already subscribed, we've got Ward. We strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else the podcasts can be listened to. As always, you can find this and all the other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. Uh, if you guys, we're, we're going to say it again. Ha, have you have you listened to Deep Impact yet? Have you done it? Why not? It's, it's really Go good. Do it. It's really it's good. good. It's great. I'm slowly reading that book and catching up with where the podcast is, and I'm really, really enjoying it. So go 
go read that book and listen to that podcast. You can find it at doofmedia.com. Do it. Yes, I, I fell a little bit behind due to my life, and, and now I'm, I'm binging it over the last uh, couple of days, and it's fantastic. <laughs> um, and if you like any of these shows and you want to support them, please consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contest, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, and our excellent Discord chat. And this week, special thanks to new Bidoofs, uh, Sophia, Garrett N, Alejandro V, and Brad E, all at the $1 level. We appreciate all of you. Thank you so much. And also, uh, Elliot upgraded to $10, so he is in the Doof Troop now. So thank you so much to Elliot as well. We really appreciate thanks, that guys. all of you. Yeah. Mwah. And of course, while you are on Patreon, make sure you go over to, to patreon.com slash wildbow and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by spreading the podcast, spreading the word, telling people about this. I think we're probably pretty much at the saturation point of people who read this book now, <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe there's like 10 or 15 other people that don't know we exist yet. Yeah. So tell those people. Find them. Yeah, find them and and force them. Um you can instead help us out by heading uh, the you can also head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This week's review comes from Ruby Lover 15 White Rose, who gives us five stars and says, I love this podcast so much. Matt and Scott are so funny and charming. Ooh. And their analysis of Wild Bo's amazing web serials is thoughtful and enlightening. Hearing them go over Wild Bo's literary techniques he use, uses honestly teaches me more than any of my old high school teachers. Keep it up, my dudes. P.S. You hackers, you got Karma Chameleon stuck in my head. Look at what you've done. Thank you so much, Ruby Lover. Um, I always feel a little bit weird of those about those English teacher questions <laughs> or, or things because like we're definitely not I'm definitely like not more knowledgeable than an English teacher. I think the thing about English class is it's ruled by stupid archaic des designs of what discussing literature is. And you're not allowed to um, read worm in them. True. That is that is also a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, if you're an English teacher out there, I love you. You're doing you're doing a great job. I'm sorry that they forced you to read Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. A bad book. And analyze The Hobbit in a way that strips all enjoyment out of it. Yeah. All right, you heckers. <laughs> that's it for real this time. Next week, we'll be back with a brand new arc. Bye.